0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. The man, the myth, the guy who did damn near everything better than anyone who had come before him and better than most who came after him. The genius genius. There was seemingly nothing this guy couldn't do exceptionally well. He painted some of the most esteemed and valuable pieces of art of all time. He sketched detailed schematics for inventions that were in some cases several hundred years ahead of their time. He was an artist, an architect, an inventor, a mad scientist, a student of all things scientific. He possessed the intense curiosity of a thousand curious people. And the drive of 10,000 to follow through on that curiosity with continual experimentation that led towards immense understanding and scientific advancement. His social circle included kings, nobles, the other top artists of the Italian Renaissance, and the Pope. His natural genius crossed so many disciplines that he epitomized the term Renaissance Man. And he did this all despite being born the bastard child of either a peasant or a slave. We're going to have fun today. Going to get some inspiration. And I'm probably going to say some super fucked up stuff here and there because it makes me so happy to do that. All kinds of stuff happening on today's. If I can accomplish 1% of what Leonardo da Vinci did, I'll have lived a very full and successful life edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Monday meat sacks. I'm Dan Cummins. He have many suck-based nicknames, and you are listening to Time Suck. Pumped that my upcoming podcast, The Horrorcast, Scared to Death, now on iTunes, and I think everywhere else. All the big third-party podcast apps. Hail Lucifina. Hope I can scare you like I've been scaring Queen of the Suck, Lindsay. Go subscribe to Scared to Death. Nimrod Bojangles and Triple M can take a back seat today. Hail you, Colt to the Curious member. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you once again by longtime supporter of the Suck, Lisa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put your butt on a Lisa. The only thing that you should spend more time, uh, you know, with your hiney touching than your Lisa mattress is your undies. Or, you know, live free and have nothing spend more time with your bare bottom than a Lisa mattress. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, Lisa's on a mission to give your body the rest it needs with two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases for a better place to sleep. They also believe in providing a better night's sleep for everybody. And to date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofit organizations. Love seeing those numbers continue to climb. Such an awesome organization, not just making money, giving back as well. Get 15% off your entire Kickass order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use promo code timesuck. That's dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Timesuck also brought to you today by Tool. Fuck yeah. Last week, I checked the upcoming sponsor list while listening to uh, Top Tool tracks on Spotify. And as I'm checking and listening to Parabola, the Tool sponsorship comes in. Did you know that Tool is finally available in places like Spotify? Tool's entire music catalog now available, finally. Hail Nimrod for streaming and downloads for the first time ever. Fans like myself, we can list all five albums. And I have been now on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, iTunes, YouTube Music, Pandora, and more. Tool also announced their brand new album, the one we Tool fans have been waiting for since 2006, Fear Inoculum. Available now. It dropped on August 30th, and it's long worth. It's worth a long wait. I mean, I had to record this on August 27th, so I, I, I've only heard the Fear Inoculum single, but love it. And I also have read reviews about the upcoming album. Upcoming to me now, as you're hearing this, out now. Uh, critics saying that it lives up to the hype. Worth the long wait. So start listening to Tool's entire music catalog today. Don't miss their new album, Fear Inoculum, released just this past August 30th. Uh, thanks to anyone who came to the Hollywood and San Diego shows, hoping they went really well. Next day to Chicago, get to Thalia Hall. One show, Friday, September 13th. Friday the 13th, Chicago. You fucking get there. Uh, Phoenix, Copper Blues Live, September 19th to the 21st. A live time suck, Ant Hill Kids suck on the twenty first. Indie after that, being in Indianapolis at the Helium New Comedy Club. More dates at dancummins.tv. Uh Get back to school in style this year with the Pooty and Juju shirt, made up of over twenty different fan renditions of what these weird, lovable little dinglings might look like. I love it. Fan artwork T-shirts, all shirts made out of three hundred percent pure zip it Juju. Two little two a Pooty, friendship and love, and also porcupine dick to keep the shirts from getting too soft and sentimental. Uh, domestic free-range porcupine dick, I might add. Also, to go with this, uh, you know, cuter-than-a-pootie-toot shirt, we have an old-school Pootie and Judy metal lunchbox. Straight out of the fucking 80s. Back, pack up those peanut-butt-butter Sammys. Throw them in this bad boy with some hot apple cider. Showbiz! Put it in this lunchbox, Shirley. I can picture little Pooty and Judy walking to their weird little jobs, or, you know, boring little jobs, actually, uh, carrying strange little lunches of candy and juice boxes and carny food. Thanks, uh, thanks for letting us get so weird, Meat Sacks, uh, Pudi, and Juju. I, ho- I hope you guys continue to like them popping up from time to time. And thanks for letting us donate and continue to do that. Donating 3000 to charity this month. Hell yeah. Uh-huh. Hail Nimrod! Nimrod making his way to the ring, not to throw down, but to donate! So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, September is host to so many national days. National Chess Day, National German Sandwich Day, National 401K Day and most importantly to my wife, Lindsay, Queen of the Suck, uh, Beyonce's birthday, but we're not donating to Beyonce. She's, she's, she's good. We're donating $3,000 to the nonprofit Youth on Record. With the help of Colorado's most talented and willing musicians, Youth on Record inspires at-risk youth to see the potential for a better life. Thanks to loyal fan uh, in Denver, Michael, sorry, no last name, given that we could find for this amazing suggestion. Youth on Record's vision is for Colorado youth to discover how their voice and value can create a better world. They're committed to ensuring that the youth they serve, graduate from high school, are ready to enter the workforce, transition to college, and are advanced technical training and careers. Their programs empower a thousand plus teens in some of Denver's most vulnerable communities to make life choices that positively impact their future by teaching them to develop the coping tools, inspiration, tenacity to, to succeed in today's world and to become leaders of tomorrow. They do really cool shit like work with at-risk teens who are on the edge of not graduating, Uh, having local musicians work with them to make up lost graduates, uh, you know, uh, and show them a different non-traditional artistic way to succeed in life. So hail Nimrod. And their founder is Stephen Brackett from Flowbots, uh, that band with the big hit song Handlebars, Denver-based musician, right? That song, uh, I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. handlebars." You've heard it. Thanks to all the space wizards for allowing us to donate this money on behalf of Time Suck. Nimrod and Lucifina, very pleased. Announcements are done if good news annoys you. We're going to get on to the life and works of Da Vinci now. It's a fitting year to do this since uh, May marked 500 years since his death. Great choice, Patreon Space Lizards. And uh, and thank you, Space Lizards, for just allowing us to hire our third full-time employee as well. Someone who worked for months as a TimeSuck volunteer. Then for well over a year as someone making a little bit each month to do so many social media things. Uh, you know, she, get the, she got the private Facebook group started, moderated it, Discord started, moderated it moved from Portland, Oregon to CDA, Idaho, just for this job. Harmony Vella Camp. High priestess. Uh, thank you for bringing her to us. So hail Nimrod. Now back to Da Vinci. Uh, artist, architect, inventor, engineer, scientist, and more. Da Vinci's many talents, interests, accomplishments, you know, have made him the uh, inspiration of many of us lowly hustlers, grinders, workaholics, other ambitious lunatics working our asses off to try and create something amazing. I sure as shit do not have this man's level of talent, but I may have a touch of his drive to create. So let's get inspired. Let's get to know Leonardo motherfucking Da Vinci. As we'll soon learn, Da Vinci's many, many interests would take him away from an even greater art career than he could have had, uh, which he had such an amazing one already. It's crazy to think uh, about how famous of an artist he is five centuries after he died. I mean, Da Vinci's paintings are some of the most valuable pieces of art ever created. Even the unfinished and damaged ones, part of their value may lie in their scarcity. There are only under 20 surviving pieces, uh, you know, that Da Vinci gets credit for. Even some of those are, you know, disputed. For some reason, I thought there was way more than that. Uh, the most expensive of Da Vinci's works, at least that have been put up for sale so far, called Salvador Monday or Savior of the World, Sold at Christie's Auction House in New York in 2017 for a record-smashing $450.3 million. Almost half a billion fucking dollars. For one painting. For a painting that, in my opinion, isn't even like in the top five best paintings he made. And it's pretty beat up. What would the Mona Lisa get? Uh, I'm going to tell you later. It's, it's insane uh, what it's valued at. Also, this particular Da Vinci painting, uh, the most uh, you know uh, commonly of his quote-unquote known works thought to be a fraud. A lot of members at the art world dispute its authenticity. So someone spent 450 million bucks for what might be one of Da Vinci's (laughs) shittiest paintings. Who has that kind of cash to blow on a painting, by the way? Anyway, uh, Saudi Prince Bader, bin Abdullah, bin Muhammad, bin Farhan, al Saad, and the Salvador Monday isn't uh, even currently on display. In fact, no one even knows where the painting is. It's rumored to have uh, deteriorated to a point that it might not be fit for display. The highest amount paid for a work of art at auction previously was 179.4 million. For, he made that seem sound like a small number, like pfft, whatever, fucking 180 mil. <laughs> okay, have fun with your like, trash painting. Uh, that was Picasso's Women of Algiers in May of 2015. Uh, the highest known sale price for for any artwork, you know, not a, necessarily at an auction, was 300 million dollars for William de Kooning's Interchange. Modern art sold privately in September, 2015 by the David Geffen Foundation to hedge fund manager, Kenneth C. Griffin. It's an abstract landscape. And if I didn't, I'm not kidding when I say this. If I didn't know its value and just saw it at a local art gallery, I literally wouldn't put it in my house if they gave it to me for fucking free. Art is so subjective. Like I looked at it, I'm like, what? That to me is a piece of shit. Uh, But you know, one man's throw that piece of shit in the trash and burn It's another man's $300 million painting. Gotta love art. In addition to be known for his art, Da Vinci also known for conspiracies. Ooh, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get weird. After half a millennium, the scholarship on Leonardo is immense and continuing Leonardo's life and work have long been the stuff of speculation. Wild theories, untrammeled fantasy, says Martin Kemp, professor emeritus of art history at Oxford and one of the world's foremost Leonardo scholars. He says, I get bombarded with things about Leonardo on a regular basis that range from laughable to insane. Uh, The bombardiers include neuroscientists, dentists, uh, ophthalmologists, psychologists, pathologists, geomorphologists, whatever the fuck that is, artists, photographers, even some art historians. Kemp has devised a taxonomy of disinformed or eccentric ideas about Leonardo. He says that uh, there are mystic theorists who believe that secret messages about the nature of the cosmos are concealed in Leonardo's work, Uh, heresy theorists who believe that Leonardo was involved in some sort of religious cabal. Geo theorists who fall all over themselves trying to identify the background landscape in the Mona Lisa and other paintings. Attribution theorists who want to, you know, uh, put Leonardo's name on works that isn't his. Drag theorists who believe that the Mona Lisa depicts either Leonardo or one of his pupils dressed as a woman. Sci-fi theorists, you know, pretty much exactly uh, what you imagine. They believe he was some kind of reptilian space lizard, uh, some Anunnaki Illuminati member. Kemp calls Dan, Dan uh, Kemp calls Dan Brown, uh, author of the Da Vinci Code the godfather of many of these theories. Uh, it's funny how one fiction author writing one fictional novel, focusing on Da Vinci, has played a part in, in you know, uh, mysteries that un- unravel into other fictional mysteries written about other fictional and you know, or written in other fictional Dan Brown novels. Millions forget about the fiction part of his job description and think this shit is true. Like like Dan Brown, yeah, he has written a lot of books about a lot of weird things and he uses, you know, real names, but it's It's fiction. Kemp says that Brown is responsible for the idea that there are hidden codes, messages, mystic geometries, disguised words, esoteric numbers, in a variety of Renaissance paintings. I wonder if Dan Brown, who's only 55 right now, just laughs his ass off when taking a second to really reflect on how many wackadoodles he has fucking riled up, people now out on the web passing along his ideas that he pulled out of his ass as actual, could not be more true, wake up sheeple conspiracies. How weird is that? He made all of it up to write a fiction novel. And now, years later, like, I don't even know, maybe millions of people be like, yeah. I mean, you know that he was part of the Priory of Scion and all this nonsense. Oh, man. Uh, I wonder how many conspiracy nuts even understand what the word fictional means. Carmen C. Bombach, a curator in the Department of Drawings and Prints at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the author of an upcoming four volume study, Leonardo da Vinci Rediscovered, hears from Leonardo Disciples on the Fringe at least once a week. She says, uh, a recent example is two men said that in Leonardo's earliest dated drawing, the Arno Valley from 1473, they saw elephants, camels, and birds in what essentially is a landscape. I commended them for their love of Leonardo, but said there are no elephants or other animals in the drawing. I stared at this image for a few minutes, and I didn't see anything that remotely resembled any animal, especially like an elephant. For a few minutes, I was pretty sure I saw some sweet boobs, though. Hail Lucifina. Look at those hot tatas. Pretty sure I projected those girls into the image. I think that's what people do. They see what they want to see. One of the more widespread Leonardo theories involves the figure of the Apostle John with his vaguely feminine features in The Last Supper. The idea here, which parallels the findings of Brown's uh, Robert Langdon, the fictional professor of symbology at Harvard, fictional, is that Leonardo was depicting not John, but Mary Magdalene. And the church authorities through the centuries waged a campaign to cover up This intimate relationship between Jesus and Mary. Zero reputable scholarship supports this interpretation of the Last Supper. We're going to have some fun with this particular belief in a few minutes. Going to really dig into this one. Uh, The Mona Lisa has been the subject of a lot of non-expert speculation. Hidden images in the painting have been found, quote unquote, by many. Ron Piccirillo, an artist in Rochester, New York, claimed on his website that when he looked at the painting upside down and followed the highlights of her portrait, he was able to spot what turned out to be a lion's head an ape head, and a buffalo head. He added that, quote, for me, it it helps to only use one eye. And the viewer should be extremely close to the left edge of the painting. (laughs) Good job, Ron. Way to get to the bottom of some shit. So glad you spent all that time doing that. Very helpful. Very interesting. The da Vinci may have made it very, very difficult to maybe kind of random spot a few dumb animals hidden into a painting. Like, what? Uh, Silvano people dedicate so much of their lives to this stuff. Silvano Vincenti, an art history sleuth who runs something in Italy called the National Committee for the Promotion of Historical and Cultural Heritage, claims that he can discern minute letters painted in Mona Lisa's eyes. In the right eye, for instance, he detects the letters L and V. The Louvre says that this is a you know very famous museum in Paris. Says that it has examined the painting with every possible laboratory test and has found no letters. Huh. Guess all the experts at the Louvre must be uh, hiding something. Fucking Knights Templar puppets. Tons of conspiracies revolve around the Mona Lisa. There are hidden messages and symbolism to speculation that Mona Lisa is actually Da Vinci himself or an assistant dressed as a woman, as I said earlier. Animals, numbers, you know, sneaking himself into a painting, maybe dressing as a woman. I hear all that and I think, who gives a fuck? Was Da Vinci connected to some ancient mysteries? Was he a member of some clandestine secret society? Answer me those riddles, wackadoodles, or take your tinfoil hats and get the fuck off my lawn. According to some, Leonardo was the leader of a secret group called the Priory of Sion. According to the Da Vinci Code, fictional book, it was the Priory's mission to keep the secret of Mary Magdalene and her marriage to Jesus alive. While the Da Vinci Code is fiction, it is based on theories from a controversial nonfiction book entitled Holy Blood, Holy Grail, written by Michael uh, Bagent, Richard Lay, Henry Lincoln in the early 1980s. Holy Blood, Holy Grail cites the evidence for Leonardo's membership in the secret Priory of Sion as a number of documents deposited in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. But is that even true? Uh, we're spoiler alert. No, <laughs> we're going to look into the Priory of Sion just a bit. We have talked about that uh, group before and debunked it previously. We're going to get into that again here soon. Uh, So let's take a second to point out one thing before we do that that Da Vinci really did do that helps conspiracy theorists believe lots of crazy shit about the man. Da Vinci uh, really was not a stranger to secret codes. A lot of his notes were written backwards with quote unquote mirror writing. It's unclear exactly why Leonardo did this. It's been suggested that he may have felt that some of his military inventions would be too destructive and powerful if they fell into the wrong hands. Therefore, he protected his notes by using a reversed method of writing. Other scholars point out this type of encryption was pretty easy to break. You only need to hold the paper up to a mirror to read it. Not exactly a real, uh, you know, secret code. If Leonardo was using that for security, he he probably was only just trying to protect the contents from a casual observer, just kind of like walking by or glancing over his shoulder for a second. And other researchers have suggested that he used this reverse writing because he just found it easier to write that way. And he was a weird eccentric genius. He was left-handed. It would have made writing backwards less difficult for him than than for a right-handed person. And I just think it's funny that some people think he wrote backwards to hide powerful inventions from powerful people, like people like the leaders of the church, leaders of nefarious secret societies, (laughs) as if these powerful leaders just weren't smart enough to figure out he was fucking just writing backwards. It's literally the easiest code to break. Just hold up to a mirror, code broken. Okay. So let's take a second now to examine the juiciest conspiracy I've teased a bit here, this one involving Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, The Last Supper painting, and the Priory of Scion. Let's pop into today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Okay, the video I looked at today is called uh, Does the Last Supper Really Have a Hidden Meaning? It's published by the Smithsonian Channel, fairly reputable. June 18th, 2013, four-minute video. It looks into the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code's novels claim that the figure sitting to the right of Jesus in the painting is not the disciple John, as the church claims, but instead Mary Magdalene, and that Mary is the Holy Grail. So what does that even mean? That would mean that Mary bore Jesus at least one child. Scandal alert, Jesus was not celibate. And if Jesus wasn't celibate, that means that Christian churches have been enforcing a patriarchy based on lies. It means that the Catholic church in particular has built its entire celibate, you know, priest based workforce on lies. It's all been a scam for the church to maintain unnatural dominion over its faithful when the truth was Jesus, Jesus was just a dude. So calm the fuck down on the celibacy and uh, on the net necessity of the priests. And uh, it could also mean that the bloodline of Christ led past his death, that the descendants of Jesus walk amongst us, you know, the, the literal descendants. They're the Holy Grail. And what does that mean? You know, what is Da Vinci trying to tell us? Well, it means that Christ's descendants are part God. Therefore, they might have some kind of God-like wizard powers. And these God wizards are probably Illuminati leaders, or maybe they've been hidden generation after generation by Knights Templars or Freemasons or Priory of Scion people. You know, maybe they've been made to think that they're not God wizards because the church is afraid of them. They could, you know, tip the balance of power. Maybe the Catholic Church is trying to exterminate them because they're a threat to its very existence. Look, no one can really seem to agree on, on all this shit. There's a lot of different conspiracies that just kind of spiral out from the uh, Uh, This basic belief that Mary Magdalene was sitting next to him. A lot of people just seem to agree that Da Vinci tried to expose some carefully guarded secrets in his paintings. They could shake up the current power structure of the world. Somehow, I think. Again, a lot of these conspiracies, you know, fall apart pretty quickly when you try and find out exactly what they do in fact mean. They seem to have just more of a general vibe of just like, we're trying to find out what it means. We just know that they're fucking hiding something, Dan. Okay? The global elites are making it difficult to find out what they're fucking hiding. Um. So what exactly is the Holy Grail even supposed to be anyway? A term gets tossed around. Well, the Grail is that fabled artifact that usually shows up as the cup that Jesus drank of at the Last Supper. Uh, We spent some time talking about this in Suck 140, Legends of King Arthur. We learned in that Suck that the Holy Grail is an invention of Arthurian legend myth-making. Like no one even talked about it uh, in the first millennium after the death of Christ. It doesn't show up at all until 1190. In the Smithsonian video, a Da Vinci expert carefully explains that St. John always looked like a woman in other, you know, previous traditional paintings of the Last Supper. You know, Da Vinci didn't just come up with this uh, Last Supper idea and the way he arranged and everything. It was part of a tradition of many frescoes and murals and paintings. A lot of different Renaissance guys did Last Supper paintings, many of them well before Da Vinci. So Da Vinci had to follow some kind of like, you know, traditions when he's doing this painting. And and that's why, you know, in in these paintings, St. Peter, you know, handles a knife. Judas carries a purse of silver. And that's why Da da Vinci's depiction of St. John is feminine. It's it's tradition. He looks feminine in all of the church commission Last Supper paintings completed by a variety of other artists. Da Vinci didn't invent this. Uh, Da Vinci did break one tradition in his painting. uh, His rendition of the Last Supper is the first known example of Jesus and his disciples not having halos. What does that mean? Did Da Vinci think that these people were not saints and they were just dudes? Possibly. Or maybe someone told him to do that. They thought it would look cooler. Who the fuck knows? Maybe just random artistic whimsy. Uh, the narrator of the Smithsonian video also quickly points out that there are no hidden letters in the painting, alluding to Mary Magdalene being A in the painting and B her womb being the real holy grail. And when you look at it, there's just not any, you know, any hidden letters clearly. Okay. But now, now that we kind of have an understanding of what this video is, let's look at the comments. Renee S. writes, people believe that this painting holds a hidden meaning because da Vinci was supposedly in the Priory of Sion. And then Mandy J. Madison, quick to reply. She writes, you seem to have missed out on the most important important point that the expert in this documentary is making. Dan Brown's book is, all caps, FICTION. None of it is true. The letters are not there. The young person is not Mary Magdalene. There is no reference whatsoever to the Holy Grail. The Priory of Scion didn't exist. And Mandy's right. There was no Priory of Sion. We cover that in Bonus Suck 23, Follow the Knights Templar. We learned that a wackadoodle named Pierre Plantard made it all up. He invented a secret organization within the Knights Templar tasked with ensuring Christ's blood descendants survived and that their real identities were kept secret for fear that the church would kill them. Pulled the whole thing out of his wackadoodle asses. Same guy, Pierre, uh, also claimed that, you know, as prophesied by Nostradamus that he would become the French emperor. He would, you know, uh, retain or, or, you know, take the Holy Roman empire, bring it back. Uh, take it to its, you know, to new heights of glory and that he would fight the devil during the second coming of Christ. And, you know, he didn't do that. He died poor and unknown on February 3rd, 2000 and the earth still spins. There was no big battle. There is no Holy Roman Empire, no rapture, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Sometimes I I scare myself, by the way, with all the weird shit that I now know thanks to these episodes. Way too much weird conspiracy trivia inside my head. Uh, I could crush Jeopardy, 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 Jeopardy categories uh, that would never appear on the show. Nathan Dunlap doesn't give two shits about the real origins of any of this. He believes he just has a hard time expressing those beliefs. Writing Renee S. Oh, there are more truth out there in many things. I believe some circuit societies are a ribbit on some hidden truths. I back up facts with biblical meaning. (laughs) I think he means biblical. It's, it's not even close to spelled right. The one seeing eye is more than an eye, but a mind. And they got this from the Bible. I will lead you with my eye mind. Okay. Mind, eye, spirit, and side, soul. That's a a sentence. Not just an eye or set of eyes. (laughs) What the fuck? Not just an eye or set of eyes in God we trust. That's another sentence on on its own. There's some hidden truths even in Druid time, Egyptian, Scotland and Rick. Written in stone tablets. Okay. Thank thank you, Nate. I hope you're out there somewhere raising kids. Uh, It'd be a shame not to have someone to pass all of your awesome knowledge down to. Uh, Patty Kelly wants to believe she knows why Mary Magdalene was hidden from us and she's pissed about it. She writes, Mary Magdalene was hated for being a woman and jealousy surrounded her for how Jesus felt about her. When male religious leaders turn everything into a boy's club, they shun their own birth givers, mothers. It's disgusting how religion has been used and turned against spirituality and to control keeping women down and men boastful filled with arrogance and pride, which is not something God would like. And I, and I really like Patty's thoughts. I truly do. I agree that most religions have a, you know, have had a misogynistic patriarchal agenda woven into them. Nassim Zwei does not agree with Patty. He has a very different theory on why women specifically were left out when it came to church leadership. Writing one sentence. It's because women suck Satan's dick. Okay, then. All right. Uh, Patty has yet to reply to this difference of opinion. I would love it if she did take it seriously. Just wrote something back like, interesting observation, it seems way. I hadn't thought of all the devil dick sucking when I made my initial post. Can you send links to theological explanations that help give credence to your claims of satanic fellatio? Would love to continue examining your very credible and not at all inflammatory hypothesis. Captain 77 Harris posts, I'm not sure about the letter thing, but that one figure does appear to be a woman. And that is super annoying. It's annoying because a good two fucking minutes of the four minute video is dedicated specifically to carefully explaining how there was a long tradition of artists commissioned by the church to paint Last Supper scenes depicting John as being feminine. Why? Because he was the youngest apostle. It was just symbolic. It's not some secret symbol da Vinci has snuck into the painting. You know, instead of making him tiny to depict John being younger, artists just made him look a little more feminine since young men do look more feminine than older men because that's how fucking life works. Series of older Last Supper paintings are shown to prove this uh, in this video that this guy just completely uh, just ignored. The world's top Da Vinci expert is interviewed and still Captain Dumbfuck doesn't listen writes, one figure does appear to be a woman though. That is just as ignorant as as, as, as if like you watch someone who made a video explaining how a Mirage works. They break down the exact scientific principles that come together to make it look, you know, uh, like there's there's water in the distance when there in fact is no water. Experts come on, talk about it. Diagrams are fucking drawn out and shown. Footage is evaluated, carefully dissected. Everyone agrees that it looks like there's water when there is for sure not water, and that's how a mirage works. And then someone like Captain77Harris just writes, not sure about the whole light refracted by warm air near the ground thing, but there for sure is some water in the distance. Why is that? Lisa Amechi writes, why is the Holy Grail on the wall and not on the table where it once was? Just asking. Mandy J. Madison doesn't care for this question. She's losing her shit. She keeps popping back up in the feed. She replies, What this video is telling you is that the book is nonsense. Did you miss that point? It isn't about the holy grail. I can just see, I can just see her typing this, just hear her. Just a like, what God damn it! You're talking about a real painting! Not the stupid book. Fucking Dan Brown, look what you've done. And I'll leave you with Tom Ato, uh, who should probably listen and learn more and type a lot less. He writes First of all, who the hell was Da Vinci? In my point of view, he was just a painter, a man who painted, he has that in quotes for some reason, who painted pictures of things he visualized in his mind. The Last Supper is just a painting made up in his mind of what the Last Supper might have looked like. The painting has no meaning nor fact about crap because he was not present at the time of event. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for showing up. Hey, buddy, I want you to go grab your participation trophy. It's out back by the fucking dumpster where your brain lives. What are you talking about? Only people who were there can be trusted when it comes to the accuracy of a historical event. All right, well, let's just take ninety percent of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographies, uh, you know, of important people, and just fucking burn them. Let's just, just burn them. They weren't there. Throw them out. They weren't at event. Throw them out. Attention, all history professors. If you weren't at a shut the fuck up. You don't know facts about crap. Beat it, Roman history experts. None of you tricksy fuckers were there. So enough with your horse crap. Hey, guy, working on Thomas Jefferson term paper, take computer and shove it up your lying ass. You don't know crap about crap, crap face. Hey, paleontologist, remember that one time you hung out with dinosaurs? No? Then pack up your crap. Get a job, crap holes. That's all for today's it, uh, Idiots of the Crappy Internet. Idiots of the Internet. 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 I got to say, I'm feeling better about that education donation we've made this month. So important. It's so important. Please, please educate your kids. Please, God, please. Okay. Now that I've uh, hopefully shown there isn't much credence to Da Vinci conspiracies, let's look into uh, how cool his life actually was like like legit one of the coolest lives ever, in my opinion, in the history of all lives. Let's get to know this a scribbling and a doodling some bitch. Let's dig into life and achievements of today's Renaissance Man and today's Time Suck timeline right after a word from our next sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you by Hymns, makers of man lotions and so much more. I don't sleep enough. Of course I don't. I do this podcast tour. I try and spend time with my wife and you know two kids and two fur kids whose company I actually enjoy. And some days I wake up looking old and tired. Thank God for Hymns. I put on Morning Glow Vitamin C Serum and my skin feels tighter, looks younger. I put on Good Night Wrinkle Cream the night before so my skin's hydrated and not the dried out crusty face mask is some sort of man iguana. And Hymns doesn't just make faces look better. It also gets weans harder. OMG, no JK. Getting older can be a downer. You don't want to go Chikatilo below the waist. How dare you use Chikatilo on capitalist Average? Get the fuck out of here, you limp Russian. 40% of men by age 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Thankfully, there's 4 one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual awareness for men. What did I just say? Sexual wellness is what I meant to say. HIMS connects you with real licensed doctors, FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. No need to worry about multiple in-office doctor visits. Simply answer questions about your medical history, chat with a doctor for confidential review, and if approved, products ship directly to your door. Try Hims for a month today for just five bucks. That'll get you started. Five bucks while supplies last. Prescription products subject to doctor approval Required online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website, website for full details. Oh, my mouth's on fire today. And save information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy. Go to 4 slash timesucked. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash 4 slash time suck ED. Link in this episode description. All sponsor links there. Leonardo motherfucking Da Vinci timeline right now. Strap on those boots soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Leonardo Da Vinci was born on April 15th 1452 at the third hour of the night around 10 p.m. In the Tuscan Hills town of Vinci, in the lower valley of the Arno River in the territory of Florence, his birth was recorded by his paternal grandfather in a journal. Vinci, just outside of Florence, only 35 kilometers, just over 20 miles west of the famed city of the Renaissance, the main attraction of this little 14,650-person town-ish area, outer suburb of Florence, is the Leonardo da Vinci Museum. Uh, or, you know, to say it in Italian, uh, Museo Leonardino. come through the and stick it on for the pizza pie. It's Mario. I'm gonna do my best not to keep slipping into a bad cartoonish Italian uh, stereotypical accent based only on the Mario Brothers. But it's gonna be hard not to keep doing it. I love a little Vinci almost as I love a spaghetti. Almost as much as I hate of kinkabo. I hate a king. Uh, Vinci is a sister city of Allentown, Pennsylvania, for you time suckers living there. Just a few kilometers outside the current town is the home where Da Vinci was born. His birth home still stands, which is pretty awesome. Uh, You even get to walk up a trail through an olive tree grove to get there. How very Italian. The home was recently uh, reopened to the public after a careful restoration project, uh, La Casa Natale del Leonardo. Uh, Da Vinci was the illegitimate son of Messer Piero Frusino di Antonio Da Vinci, a Florentine notary and lawyer, member of a family of minor nobles, and Caterina a peasant who may have been a slave from China or the Middle East. Humble beginnings. He was a bastard, literally. The illegitimate child of perhaps a slave, loving him even more right now. And actually being born illegitimately paved the way for Leonardo to become an artist. Had he been born legitimately, he would have been expected to take part in the family business of being a notary or a lawyer. Uh, Notaries, by the way, played an important role, drawn up commercial contracts, land sales, wills other legal documents in Latin, for the merchants of Florence's flourishing trade and banking industries. Since he wasn't legitimate, the culture of the day dictated that he was forbidden to join the family business, which opened the path to art for him. Also, Leonardo was also lucky to have been born a bastard in Italy in the mid 15th century because unlike at other times in European history, other places in Europe, it wasn't a social hindrance. 19th century cultural historian, Jacob Burkhardt, went so far as to label the Italian Renaissance a golden age for bastards. Uh, Pius II, who was the Pope when Leonardo was born, wrote about visiting a Ferrara, Italy, wh- wh- where his welcoming party included seven princes from the ruling Este family, among them the reigning duke, all born out of wedlock, right? So yeah, now back to Leonardo's mother. Mother, bring my pizza pie, mother. Maybe some of meatballs on a stick of mother. Uh, Caterina was a common name for slaves at that point. Uh, some analysis led some to believe a uh, supposed Leonardo fingerprint had features common to people of Middle Eastern origin. Most scholars seem to think she was not a slave, just a very poor peasant. Kemp, that uh, emeritus professor of art history at Oxford University, said that his research into the archives of Vinci and Florence suggested that Caterina and her brother Papo were orphans who lived in a derelict farmhouse with their grandmother just outside of Vinci. Meanwhile, Sao Piero da Vinci was on his way to becoming a successful lawyer in Florence and was engaged to be married. Piero's family on his father's side had been active in Florentine politics for three centuries, and they owned farmland and numerous businesses in the area. So, you know, they were a family of means. On Sia Piero's mother's side, his family owned ceramic kilns in the nearby town of Bacareto. The incredibly powerful and influential Italian Medici family, who will show up later in this suck a bit, had a hunting lodge in Baccaretto and would buy the now-famous cobalt blue majolica ceramic pottery still seen in Florence today in places like, uh, you know, Florence's oldest active hospital, the Hospital of Santa Maria Nueva. Uh, During a visit to his hometown in July 1451, Ser Piero uh, Piero met a young woman named Caterina, and she became pregnant. So, you know, I guess he did more than just meet her. In case you don't know how babies are made, uh, he put his penis inside of her vagina, where it would remain, at least for a moment, post-ejaculation, and he did this at least once. Then, as would be customary, his family seems to have given her a dowry so that she would have enough value to be married off to another man. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. Sorry again, you Another she no longer has her purity to offer a young standing man, maybe there's a five of coats. Well will find a fellow into a male to bed. Allow me to introduce my brother Luigi. He protect her from a Bowser. how weird and sad is that? That there's a lot of truth to what I just joked about. Like that really, that was how people thought of women. Like, historically, a woman's value was located primarily just between her legs. Like, she was a car. Once she'd be driven off the lot, her value depreciated immensely. A uh, very primitive, uh, reductionary way to look at somebody. Professor Kemp figured all this out, managed through property tax records. Also found out that Ser conducted a minor legal transaction for Caterina's husband, another connection linking the artist's parents. Uh, Leonardo has no surname in the modern sense. Da Vinci doesn't come from his dad, or, you know, it doesn't have nothing to do with him being a bastard. It uh, just means of Vinci, as in he was born in the village of Vinci. His full birthday was actually Leonardo de Ser Piero da Vinci, meaning Leonardo, son of Ser Piero from Vinci. Uh, he spent his first five years mainly in the hamlet of Anciano with his mother, then lived primarily in the household of his father, grandparents, and uncle, Francesco, in the small town of Vinci. Anciano is essentially just a neighborhood inside the commune of Vinci, a commune being an, an administrative division of Italy. And the commune boundary is, you know, sometimes a little different than where the city actually ends visually. Think of it like a tiny American county. Uh, Not clear exactly why Leonardo went to live with his father when he was about five, but since we know that the man was a genius, he most likely showed a glimmer of his future intellectual and artistic abilities when he was a small boy. And his father, having a lot more means than his mother, would be able to provide him with an education that she could not uh, we do know that he didn't go live with his dad because mom died, because records show that 35 years after her son was born, Katerina went to live with Leonardo briefly, records showing that he paid for her funeral. If and did give him to his birth father to be given opportunities she could not give him, uh, I'll admit that I'm uh, speculating regarding this, but if true, wow, what an incredible sacrifice. I am continually amazed by stories like that from history, like where a parent chooses to let someone else raise their kids to give them a better chance of having a comfortable life. So incredibly selfless, such an enormous sacrifice. I can't imagine that with Kyler Monroe, uh, losing them, you know, losing time with them due to divorce was hard enough, incredibly hard, very painful. I can't imagine essentially saying goodbye to them, hoping, you know, or at least, you know, for, for most of their life so that they could, you know, have a life that I knew I couldn't give them. Whew, yeah, yes. Hard not to feel some emotions talking about that. Uh, so 1457, let's get back there. Leonardo da Vinci, five years old, goes to live with his dad, Sia Piero and his father's wife, Albiera. Piero had married a 16-year-old Albiera de Giovanni Armadori, a daughter of a prominent Florentine shoemaker in 1452 when he was 25, and Albiera loved her little illegitimate stepson, Leonardo, like he was her own. In 1462, when Leonardo, when Leonardo was 10, it is believed he began his formal artistic education. Little else is known about Leonardo's early years. In later life, he would uh, you know, record only two childhood incidents in his journals, One, which he regarded as an omen, was when a hawk-like bird called a kite dropped from the sky, hovered over his cradle at two years old, its tail feathers brushing his face, opening his mouth. He would be obsessed with the art and science of flying all his life. He attributes some of that to that that moment. The second incident occurred while exploring in the mountains. Uh, Little Leo discovered a cave and was both terrified that some great monster might lurk inside, and also he was driven by curiosity to go inside and find out if it was there. So showed, you know, that great, uh, you know, determination to follow his curiosity as a young child. Uh, Leonardo's early life has been the subject of a lot of historical conjecture, a lot of tales about him that are probably just myths and legends. Vasari, a 16th century biographer of Renaissance painters, tells of, tells of how a local peasant requested that Sierpiero ask his talented son to paint a picture on a round plaque. Leonardo responded with a painting of snakes spitting fire, which was so terrifying that Piero sold it to a Florentine art dealer who sold it to the Duke of Milan. Meanwhile, having made a profit, Ser Piero bought a plaque decorated with a heart pierced by an arrow, which he gave to the peasant. Okay, so now back to 1462, where Leonardo is 10, beginning his artistic education. If you'll recall, Ser Piero's family had a kiln in Baccareto, which was the center of, of artistic ceramic work in the Florence district, the most important and artistic area in all of Europe, if not in all of the world at that time. In the mid 15th century, the Italian Renaissance was still ramping up. Renaissance is essentially a fancy word for rebirth. And toward the end of the 14th century, a handful of Italian thinkers declared that they were living in a new reborn age. The barbarous and unenlightened Middle Ages were over. A new age of learning and literature, art and culture had begun. 15th century Italy was unlike any other place in Europe, especially Florence. Uh, but yeah, but, but Italy, uh, it was divided into independent city-states, each with a different form of government. Florence, where the Italian Renaissance began, the city-state that Leonardo's birth fell under the jurisdiction of was an independent republic also a banking and commercial juggernaut after London and Constantinople. It was the third largest city in Europe at the time. Wealthy Florentines like the Medici family flaunted their money and power by becoming patrons or supporters of artists and intellectuals like Leonardo da Vinci. And because of this artistic patronage, Florence became the cultural center of Europe and of the Renaissance itself. Very cool. Those guys you know, thought to do that. And you know, what great art was produced largely by families like the Medici, Or because of them, because they were able to support artists like, you know, Da Vinci. In addition to Leonardo Da Vinci, the Florence art scene would produce other Renaissance artists, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, you know, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael. Michelangelo created stuff like the Statue of David, the painting of the Sistine Chapel. He was one of the architects of the famed and awe-inspiring Vatican Cathedral, helped design St. Peter's Basilica. Architect, sculptor, and painter Donatello created the equestrian statue of Gattameletta that stands today in the Piazza del Santo in Padua, Italy. Uh, the also multi-talented Raphael created works such as Madonna of the Pinks, a beautiful painting showcased today in the National Gallery of London that is not a leg-splayed, wide-open crotch shot, despite what his name clearly implies. Sorry about that. Be gone, Lucifina. Uh, Florence also kicked out Sandro Batticelli, one of my favorite Renaissance artists who produced beautiful paintings like The Birth of Venus, seen today in Florence's Uffizi Gallery and Venus and Mars in the National Gallery of London as well. And what feels like a century ago when I went to school for a few months in London, I used to sit in awe in front of Venus and Mars, blown away, trying to figure out how something so beautiful and artistically powerful was created so long ago. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Virgin of the Rocks, uh, one of two of those, also housed in London's National Gallery, also blew me away. The detail, the color saturation, the mood and feelings evoked you know by this painting, just true masters of art. And 10-year-old da Vinci is there in the midst of this great artistic revival this this great awakening. His fame is the product of being born with a great mind in a great time and fate placing him in the right situation. Leonardo, grown up just outside of Florence, in the midst of Florence's Renaissance, his father's family owns a kiln where the Medici family will buy ceramic materials that are put to use by artistic masters in new buildings and monuments built to showcase, his, uh, to showcase Florence's power and strength. And, and we think this is when his artistic education begins. Early initiation at this age or younger has been more conclusively documented uh, in the lives of other Renaissance artists, we have better childhood records of. Uh, guys like Raphael, who was apprenticed to Pietro uh, Perugino, another noticed Renaissance artist by the age of 10. So 1464, uh, Leonardo's now 28-year-old stepmother, Albiera, dies during childbirth. The baby was to be Ser Piero's first legitimate child, but sadly, the baby also dies during the birth. That same year, 37-year-old Cea Piero quickly remarries Francesca Di Ser Giuliano Manfredini Listed in some sources as being 15, other sources as being 20. Little else is written about her other than that she died early into the marriage and did not produce a legitimate heir. Uh, What's interesting here is that despite his first two wives not producing a legitimate heir, Leonardo's father does not go through a legal process to make a legal heir out of Leonardo, which was possible. You could go to the courts and go through a process to make this happen. Historians think that Sepieto did not go through this legal process because Leonardo likely had already shown a passion for and a talent in the arts, and he didn't want to take an artistic future away from his son. 1466, at the age of 14, Leonardo's artistic education taken to the next level. Now we have some documentation of what's going on with his life. He gets apprenticed to one of the most successful artists of the day, uh, Andrea Andrea De Sione, better known as Verrocchio. Uh, Verrocchio, his most famous work of art is his sculpture, the equestrian statue of Bartolomeo or Bartolo. Bartolomeo uh, Callioni, which can be seen today in Venice in the Camposanti Giovanni de Paolo city square. Verrocchio had himself studied, on, studied under Donatello and he served as an official sculptor to the ruling Medici family. Not only a skilled artist, but a skilled teacher. Verrocchio's workshop was in the heart of Florence's intellectual and uh, cultural epicenter, assuring the young Leonardo of a fine education in the humanities. Other famous painters, apprenticed, or associated with the workshop include Gelandayo. Uh, Perugino, Botticelli, and other names that sound like stuff you would say uh, ordering something delicious at an authentic Italian pizzeria. Uh, yes, uh, I'd like a uh, uh, Gallandio. The Gallandio, please. Uh, can I get uh, some uh, Perugino papers? Can I have uh, some uh, fresh ground Botticelli sprinkled on top of the pizza pie? A uh, plate for two? got going to share with my princess pizza. Uh, getting this, <laughs> Getting this apprenticeship was definitely a good news, bad news kind of deal. The good news about getting an apprenticeship in Verrocchio's workshop was that Leonardo would be exposed to a vast range of technical skills and have the opportunity to learn drafting, chemistry, metallurgy, metalworking, plaster casting, leatherworking, mechanics, carpentry, as well as the artistic skills of drawing, painting, sculpting, modeling from one of the best teachers in the world, surrounded by other amazing students who would go on to become some of the world's greatest artists. Da Vinci's love for studying the anatomy of living things also likely began here in this artistic think tank workshop. Uh, The bad news about uh, this apprenticeship is that da Vinci was likely repeatedly sodomized by Verrocchio, other masters operating out of the workshop, and even other students farther along in their apprenticeships, as was sadly customary at the time. What the fuck? Uh, The origin of the phrase paying your dues is thought to have come from this 15th century Italian practice, which itself was pulled from ancient Roman and Greek traditions, and then it had a, you know, sad revival during the Renaissance. And I guess no one seemed to think it was wrong to do that to kids as young as 10 back then. Weird bit of history to try and contemplate. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello, Botticelli, all these other Italian masters sodomized repeatedly for several years as children in order to learn the skills that allowed them to produce beautiful art later in life that we now know them for. It's going to make it a little difficult to look at these paintings the same way uh, going forward. Yeah. Even among the greats, uh, Leonardo stood out as one of the best, if not the best. He would collaborate with Verrocchio on his Baptism of Christ, a painting of a young angel holding Jesus' robe, completed sometime between 1472 and 1475. Legend has it, Da Vinci painted in a manner that was so far superior to his masters that Verrocchio put down his brush, never painted again. Uh, This is probably a little more myth-making, but when you look at the two painters' works, Leonardo clearly did possess superior ability. Uh, Leonardo himself may have been the model for two works by Verrocchio, including the bronze statue of David in the Bargello and the Archangel Michael in Tob- Tobias and the Angel. But creepy with what I was mentioned earlier. Around 1471, in Verrocchio's shop, 19-year-old Leonardo works with Botticelli, Perugino, Lorenzo di Credi, and uh, Galandayo. Guelandia- Here in the first half of the 1470s, these various masters collaborated on numerous works producing, uh, you know... Um, A variety of important pieces of art from Tobias and the Archangel Raphael in the National Gallery in London to Dreyfus Madonna, currently in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. That one is generally primarily attributed to Lorenzo di Credi, but Verrocchio and a young da Vinci believed to have also worked on it. And this collaboration is what made it difficult later to ascertain, you know, which works really were da Vinci's and which were forgeries or fakes. Noteworthy for their high quality and complexity are the Baptism of Christ, Annunciation, uh, and the Annunciation. In the Uffizi, two masterpieces of synthesis in which Leonardo's role is evident. Is cool that Da Vinci worked with other masters. Uh, by 1472, at the age of 20, Leonardo qualified as a master in the Guild of Saint Luke, a highly respected guild of artists. I think of it, kind of like a union almost, uh, or, or university. And doctors of medicine. Even after his father set him up in his own workshop, though his attachment to Verrocchio was such that he continued to collaborate with him. Uh, Leonardo's earliest known solo dated work. Drawing in a, in pen and ink of the Arno Valley, drawn on August 5th, 1473. Oh, and before I forget, uh, sodomy was not part of any Italian Renaissance apprenticeship program. Uh, at least not that I'm aware of. I made that up hoping that at least a few new listeners would just be thinking for the next few minutes about like, what the fuck? Like the guy who painted the Mona Lisa had to go through that to learn how to do that? I was just a joke a uh, kid up. Uh, I I make Luigi laugh with my jokes. Uh, sorry, not sorry. JK, not sorry at all. Uh, we know that Leonardo becomes a member of the Florence Painter's in 1472, because his name appears in a Florence company's red book of creditors and debtors as Leonardo de Ser Piero da Vinci, painter. Thank you, record keepers. The painting Annunciation, or The Annunciation, by Leonardo da Vinci was painted with Andrea de Verrocchio around 1472, one of his earliest known works, one of my favorites, stunning color saturation, richness and detail. Uh, and again, uh, yeah, just, um, you know, I did not know about a lot of these Renaissance paintings that they were done with a variety of people. Very interesting to me. Uh, in 1869, uh, some critics recognized the Annunciation as the youthful work by Leonardo uh, because Verrocchio used lead based paint, heavy brush strokes, and art historians figured out that he left a note for Leonardo to finish the background and the angel. Leonardo used light brush strokes and no lead. When the Annunciation was x-rayed, Verrocchio's work is evident while Leonardo's angel would become invisible. Pretty cool how they're able to kind of like figure out like who did what on some of these paintings. 1473, Leonardo draws a landscape on the Feast of Santa Maria della Neve, uh, that pic where the dude thought he saw an elephant hidden in the background. This is his earliest known solo drawing that we have a record of. Around 1475, it's believed he began painting the portrait of Ginevra, uh, uh, fucking something the art is in a weird place Binci currently on display in Washington DC at the National Gallery of Art why haven't, why haven't I gone there I didn't realize that uh, so much cool art was in DC 1475 Leonardo may have collaborated on the Piazza Madonna for the uh, pistoia Cathedral Verocchio uh that guy that fake needed fake dues had to be paid for uh Lorenzo de Crede, who's predella a painting or sculpture on the front of a raised shelf above an altar which typically forms the base for an altarpiece now in the Louvre Around 1475, Leonardo also designs a tapestry for the King of Portugal, which has sadly been lost over time. If you do find it, uh, art historians would like you to send it to the suck Dungeon. P.O. Box 3891, Coordination, Idaho, 83816. We will take good care of it and sell it. I mean, donate it to the highest bidder, I mean, protector of art things. Leonardo, still working in Barrocchio's shop in 1476. On April 9th, 1476, 24 years old, a major event occurs in his life he is accused of sodomy. Something I totally forgot about when I was joking about him paying his dues. I'll show myself out. Uh, Leonardo was arrested along with a few other male companions, one of which he had already been arrested for the crime before. He was a well-known prostitute. When no witnesses came forward to testify against the artist and his friends, Da Vinci was acquitted on June 16th. The charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. There is speculation that since one of the accused, Leonardo de uh, Torabuani, Uh, was related to Lorenzo de' Medici. The Medici family may have exerted its powerful influence to to secure a dismissal of this case. The Medici family, extremely successful and wealthy merchants and bankers. One of the most, if not the most powerful and wealthy family, uh, not just in Florence, but in all of Europe at this time. Leonardo's journals suggest that the allegations were somewhat devastating to a man who liked to keep his private life private. And because of these accusations, it it may have cost us a lot of details about his life. He may have become much more private because he really doesn't say much in his uh, journals that he wrote about his private life. Many speculate that because of the sodomy charge, uh, he maintained a life of celibacy. Others speculate he continued to have homosexual relationships or at least flings that he kept extremely private. Many historians think Da Vinci was in all likelihood homosexual. Uh, He was known in addition to being talented and successful uh, and well-liked to also possess what one admirer called outstanding physical beauty. And yet he had no known romantic liaisons with any women over the course of his long life. He never married, never had kids. The only thing he states regarding sex in his nobics at all is, uh, the act of procreation and anything that has any relation to it is so disgusting that human beings would soon die out if there were no pretty faces and sensuous dispositions. Okay. Uh, agree to disagree, Leonardo. The nude female form, to me, long way from disgusting. Most beautiful thing on earth. Hail, Lucifina. Uh, maybe that one time, he, you know, he did it and got arrested. Maybe he just went out the wrong way with the wrong bodies. And by wrong bodies, I don't mean male bodies. I mean dirty bodies. You got to go for that clean wean, bro. Dirty dong and a mud butt. It's going to make for a rough first ride. Showbiz. Did someone just talk about peanut butter? If you can't take the creamy heat, Da Vinci, take your monkey and your peewees out of the spank my fat bottom to it bleeds kitchen. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Albert Fish, ladies and gentlemen. He'll be here all week. Try the veal. Showbiz. Uh, and maybe he really did become just kind of asexual. Maybe he was asexual. I mean, I have known people over the course of my life that read very, very, very asexual. If we're going to believe that, you know, sexuality is on a spectrum with homosexuality on one side and heterosexuality on the other, I think you also got to believe that asexuality is in there, maybe in the middle somewhere. Okay. So sad for sure that homosexuality, not acceptable in Da Vinci's day. He was lucky he didn't live a few decades earlier because uh, sodomy in Florence just a few decades prior was a crime punishable by death. 1476, Leonardo da Vinci paints the portrait of Inveria da Vinci. Uh, She was born in 1457, was a lady of the aristocratic class in 15th century Florence, admired for her intelligence by Florentine contemporaries. The oil on wood portrait permanently acquired by the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Uh, In 1967 for five million bucks, paid to the princely house of Liechtenstein, a record price at the time. Wonder how much that baby would go for now seven hundred fifty million. How much trouble would you get in for trying to steal it? Yeah, asking for a friend. It's also the only painting uh, attributed only to Da Vinci that exists in permanent display in North America. The portrait is one of the highlights of the National Gallery of Art, admired by many for its portrayal of Ginevra's. Her name is so uh, G I N E V R A. What the fuck? Um, Beautiful, you know, but austere. She has no hint of a smile in her gaze, though forward seems indifferent to the viewer. A strip from the bottom of the painting was removed in the past presumably presumably due to damage and her arms and hands I'm gonna call her uh call her Ginny Ginny's arms and hands were lost in 1478 Leonardo writes in his notebooks that he has begun two Virgin Marys. Uh, it is also likely that the uh, Benoit Madonna was the first work painted by Leonardo in 1478 maybe maybe painted by entirely by him there, there's a lot of some of the, the timeline was very difficult in the painting section. Because we don't know the exact dates, and some people think that one painting was the first one da him, someone thinks by the other. So if, I, if I'm bouncing around a little bit, I apologize. It was son of a bitch to put together in this section. Um, the composition of Madonna and Child with Flowers proved to be one of Leonardo's most. And then by the way, on that note, just really quick, I mean debates continue to this day over a lot of his works. So, you know, some works you know definitively attributed to him by some art scholars, some art historians are thought by others to nope. Not by him, but, you know, attributed to some other uh, Italian master. Sometimes people think he had a little bit to do with one painting. Uh, other people think he had a lot to do with that one. Yeah, again, a lot of the records regarding specifically the paintings. We have better records for for other stuff where we can positively attribute other, like, uh, sketches and uh, kind of inventions to him. The paintings, the way that they were done with the collaboration, and, again, the lack of records makes it pretty tricky. Um, but, yeah, 1478. Benoit Madonna, uh, painted by Leonardo. The British Museum owns two of Leonardo's preliminary sketches for this piece. The composition of Madonna in Child with Flowers proved to be one of Leonardo's most popular works, also completed, thought to be completed in 1478. It was extensively copied by young painters, including Raphael, whose own version of Leonardo's design, the Madonna of the Pinks, was acquired in 2004 by the National Gallery in London. Uh, For centuries... Madonna and child with flowers considered lost. And then in 1909, the Russian architect Leon Benoit sensationally exhibited it in St. Petersburg as part of his father-in-law's collection. The painting had been apparently brought over from Italy to Russia by the notable connoisseur Alexander Korsakov in the 1790s. Fucking sneaky Russians. If they're not spreading communism or cyber hacking or making dolls that are open to reveal tinier dolls, they're hiding famous paintings. Classic Russian move. Classic Russia. Uh, This painting is currently exhibited in St. Petersburg in the State Hermitage Museum. Never heard of it, but apparently it's the second largest art museum in the world. I got to get to St. Petersburg. Siberia I can skip. St. Petersburg would be cool as hell. Uh, Dating Leonardo's early works, proving authenticity is difficult, but this picture was probably painted somewhere between 1475 and 1480 when it's recorded Leonardo produced several Virgin Marys. Uh, The Madonna of the Carnation, aka Madonna with a vase or Madonna with child, is an oil painting by Da Vinci, created sometime around 1478, 1480. Permanently displayed in Munich, Germany, in a gallery with a name that looks like it was created by the devil himself to torture people with pronunciation limitations. It has about 400 consonants and two vowels. Uh, It's been there since 1889 after it was in private ownership. Besides painting stupid babies and shit, Leonardo also did some cool inventing. Let's get to that. Leonardo da Vinci sketched the self-propelled cart sometime between 1478-1480. For many years, folio 812R of the Codex Atlanticus was considered a part of Leonardo's famous automobile project. Only recently has it revealed its true nature as a cart devised for use in theatrical settings. The manuscript page illustration showed two distinct projects, uh, a provincial and preparatory drawing, and a more well-defined one at the center of the folio. Two large spiral springs underneath the horizontal cog wheels of the cart to provide the motive power to set the wheels in motion. They also act as a lever system for theater puppets. An additional ingenious device serves as a remote-control handbrake. I mean, I mean, you can't really call uh, this the first car, but it does feel like an ancestor to the first car for sure. Amazing how he drew something that looks centuries ahead of its time. Looks more like a production guide for something being made in the late 19th century than a sketch someone thought up in the mid 15th century. In 1480, Leonardo paints Saint Jerome in the Wilderness. It depicts Saint Jerome during his retreat to the Syrian desert, where he lived the life of a hermit, and where, if da Vinci's uh, da De Vinci's depiction is accurate, he also looked more like some kind of creepy Gollum from Lord of the Rings than he did like an actual human. I'm guessing this is the uh, Da Vinci painting you would least want to hang in your bedroom if you hate nightmares. In this painting, creepy-ass Saint Jerome, kneeling in a rocky landscape, gazing towards a crucifix that can be discerned faintly sketched in the extreme right of the painting. In Jerome's right hand, he holds a rock with which he is traditionally shown beating his chest in penance. Sweet. Not psychotic at all. At his feet is a lion, which became a loyal companion after he extracted the thorn from its paw. That part's sweet. I like that part of the story. I like the part of being friendly to the lion, uh, way more than the beating his chest with a rock like a fucking psychopath. Uh, the lion, the stone, and, and a cardinal's hat are the traditional attributes of the saint. On the left side of the panel, the background is a distant landscape of a lake surrounded by mountains, shrouded in mist. To the right-hand side, the only discernible feature is a faintly sketched church, seen to the opening and some rocks. The church's presence may allude to Jerome's position in Western Christianity as one of the doctors of the church. Left unfinished, the painting provides visitors with an extraordinary glimpse into Leonardo's creative process as he moved from underdrawing to the realization of forms in paint. The painting also preserves the imprint of the artist's fingers in the upper left corner. 1481, Da Vinci paints the adoration, the adoration of the Magi for the monks of San Donato uh, Scopeto in Florence. Leonardo was given the commission by the Augustinian monks of San Donato Scopeto in Florence, but departed from Milan the following year, leaving the painting unfinished. As he, you're going to find out, did often. It has been in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence in 1670. I have left several voicemails offering to finish it myself for free. Still waiting to hear back. Still hopeful. Still hopeful that I can get in there and do some stuff, do some doodling. Uh, the Virgin Mary and child, depicted in the foreground of the painting, form a triangular shape with the Magi kneeling in adoration. Behind them is a semicircle of accompanying figures, including what may be a self portrait of the young Leonardo in the far right. In the background, on the left, is the ruin of a pagan building on which workmen can be seen apparently repairing it. On the right are men on horseback fighting in a sketch of a rocky landscape. There's a lot going on. In the adoration of the Magi, Leonardo develops his pioneering use of the treatment of light and shade and drawing and painting. Uh, Chiaro Scioro. Creating a seemingly chaotic mess of you know mass of people plunged into darkness and confusion, from which the Magi peer towards the brightly lit figures of Mary and Jesus. He was really good at like making like paint seem just like three D. His use of you know how he drew light. Ah, the same year, most of the other noteworthy painters in Florence were sent to Rome for work uh, on projects for the Pope. 1482, Leonardo moves from Florence to Milan, entering into a long patronage he would have with uh, Ludo, Ludovico Sforza. The future Duke of Milan. By this time, Leonardo was writing in his notebooks on a regular basis. Da Vinci worked on many projects for the uh, future Duke, including the preparation of floats and pageants for special occasions. Yeah, he did fucking parades. Who knew? Designs for a dome for a Milan cathedral and a model for a huge equestrian monument to Francesco Sforza, uh, Ludovico's predecessor in 1482. It was meant to be the biggest horse statue in the world. Seventy tons of bronze were set aside. Seventy tons. Of bronze set aside for casting the monument known as Leonardo's horse. The monument remained unfinished for several years, which apparently, again, not unusual for Leonardo. Dude did not have a problem walking away from a job. The bronze he was using for the statue was used several decades later for cannons to protect the city of Milan from the invasion of Charles V, King of France. Between 1483 and 1485, Leonardo paints the first Madonna on the Rocks. Uh, The version of the Rocks, sometimes Madonna of the Rocks, uh, is, is the title of two different paintings with almost identical compositions which were both at least largely painted by Leonardo da Vinci. One is in the uh, Louvre in Paris, other is in the National Gallery in London, which I mentioned earlier. Most authorities agree that the version of the Louvre is for the most part painted by Leonardo and is, uh, you know, the earlier of the two works, the fine brushwork, use of Chiascuro, Scuro, Chiar- Chiaro- Chiaro- Chiaro, considered characteristic of many of Leonardo's works. And it's about eight centimeters taller than the London version. The first record of this picture is in 1625 uh, when it was in the French Royal Collection. On April 25th, 1483, Leonardo and the brothers Ambrogio and Evangelista de Predis were commissioned by the Milanese co fraternity of the Immaculate Conception to paint a work to celebrate in the Immaculate Conception for the new chapel. The contract survives, as does much of the documentation from later disputes over it not being finished. God damn it, Leonardo! Fucking Leonardo de Diva, apparently. Already, there had already been a previous contract in 1480 with Giancomo del Mino, Evidently, the work was not completed. Among the work stipulated in the second contract was the completion and gilding of various carvings for the wooden framework of the altarpiece, none of which are known to survive. The three paintings were stipulated, a central virgin and child and two side panels with angels, described only in the earlier contract with Delmeno. These paintings also in the National Gallery with different uh, provinces from the main, uh, God damn it. Fuck, too many words. ah. I was doing well for a while there. But every paragraph in this suck, it's like, no, just back sweat. Providences from the main were painted entirely by the brothers de Pettis, according to modern art historians and a contemporary statement by the brothers in the legal dispute. All the work was to be completed by the Feast of the Conception, December 8th, 1483. But it didn't happen because da Vinci apparently had the sassy temperament of an NFL wide receiver. At some later date, the legal dispute began, the main issue being that the main painting was not finished. And Leonardo left Milan without, you know, fucking doing that. Uh, meanwhile, the De Predis brothers completed their portion of the work. They wanted payment. The dispute was settled on April 27, 1506, with the requirement that Leonardo needs, needed to return to Milan within two years, complete the painting, and then receive uh, further sums beyond those in the original contract. So maybe he just wanted more money as it went along or something. Um, and that appears to have happened. He appears to have got more money. Another sum was paid to him in 1507. In or around 1483, Da Vinci sketches, sketches the design for a parachute in his notebook, Again, Da Vinci's so far ahead of his time. This time was not the first time he'd come up with this idea, though. Some think that the, a form of primitive parachute was mentioned by Chinese texts 20, 21 centuries ago. A conical parachute appears for the first time in the 1470s in an Italian manuscript, slightly preceding Leonardo Da Vinci's conical parachute designs. It was intended as an escape device to allow people to jump from burning buildings, but there is no evidence that it was actually ever used. Leonardo's parachute design consists of sealed linen cloth held open by a pyramid of wooden poles about seven meters long. Along with the design, his notebook had an accompanying note that read, if a man is provided with a length of gummed linen cloth with a length of 12 yards on each side and 12 yards high, he can jump from any great height whatsoever without injury. Despite this confidence, no record of Da Vinci uh, trying it out. If you look, he's like, yeah, use this parachute. You can jump out of the window of a 10-story tower. And there's no way, you can get hurt. Go ahead. Go ahead and, go ahead and try it. <laughs> me? Demonstrate and get the fuck out of here. I'm a Da Vinci. I don't even finish my art projects at half of the time. You want me to do the product demonstration? And That is for the fucking peasants. So, yeah, you can do it. The next invention to come from Da Vinci would be the first of many created for war. And let's go over these theoretical weapons right after today's final sponsor. Today's time Suck is brought to you by the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy traditional Italian music master class, limited time, special edition Forgotten Works of Da Vinci Course. Don't push delete. I know some of you hate the air banjo so much. I just want to demonstrate how to play, you know, a song recently rediscovered that Da Vinci had, you know, uh, you know, put together for the air banjo. Just, just, just humor me for just a bit. Okay, I'm done. See? That wasn't that wasn't too bad. And of course that had nothing to do with da Vinci, it was just an excuse to force a Mario Brothers theme song on you. Tinker tinka tinka Tinker Tinker Tinker. Tinker Tinker Tinker. Okay, now I'm really done. Now I'm really done. Here we go. Really done now. Don't leave me. Uh, Today's Time Suck is brought to you by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Yay, delicious food. Do you like delicious food? Do you like food that tastes like it's been scraped off some dirty asphalt? Or do you prefer delicious food? Oh, oh good. Me too. Uh, With HelloFresh, you'll get easy, seasonal recipes, pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh gives you everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in about a half hour. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food. HelloFresh offers something for everyone from family recipes to calorie smart and vegetarian, a fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. Mmm, burgers. And it's flexible. Change your delivery days, food preferences, skip a week whenever you need with ease, and I like ease. I like ease and delicious food. Uh, we recently cooked up the pork and poblano tacos. I'm not a great cook. Don't do it often. But thanks to very clear instructions and everything already be measured out, I knocked out that meal with ease and then made some stuff that looked and tasted like I ordered it from some kind of fancy taco joint. Perfectly seasoned pork. Uh, would for sure make, again, kiwi salsa. Fancy. Like I went to some kind of Hawaiian taco school. Like I got my Hawaiian taco doctorate. Dr. Taco! Maybe that's another new nickname for me. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash timesuck80. Enter code timesuck80. That's timesuck eight zero. That's like receiving eight meals for free. When you go to hellofresh.com, timesuck80, enter the code timesuck eight zero. Link in the episode description. Now let's talk about some crazy ass DaVinci weapons. 1485, possibly 1486, Leonardo gets into the missile launching business, sketches a design for a giant crossbow, like a like a really big crossbow. Uh, the effort put into the design of the components indicates that he was striving to realize it as a workable weapon. The structure is huge. Its dimensions can be judged when comparing the machine to the drawing of a man who is operating it. The bow is made of thin wood on six wheels, 27 yards across, <laughs> made up of 39 separate parts. This giant crossbow would be cranked with winding gears had two different firing mechanisms, the simplest of which involved releasing a holding pin by striking it with a mallet. If successfully built, it would have been able to shoot giant rocks, other huge projectiles very fast across the battlefield. Reminds me of how back in the Plague Suck, we talked about launching plague-infected bodies through the air with the trebuchet. What if you could shoot infected dudes across the battlefield with a giant crossbow? Load the Greg! Aim the Greg! Crossbow fire the Greg! I mean, can you imagine seeing a giant crossbow on the battlefield? I mean, they did already have cannons, but I think a giant crossbow way more intimidating. That's that's like straight out of Game of Thrones. Like it's like one of those things they used to try and kill the dragons with. You know, what if you could make giant arrows? You know, just shoot them through the battlefield. Like just 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 make a shish kebab of enemy dudes. What if the arrow was on fire? What if you could make a flaming human shish kebab? It's a good thing Vlad the Impaler. Ruled a few decades before Da Vinci and didn't get a hold of that weapon. Oh, he'd have been shish kebabbing motherfuckers left and right for Vlachia. Also around 1485, Leonardo Da Vinci sketched designs for some uh, other vehicles of war. Uh, one idea was a scythe chariot. My God. This, this is some like Grim Reaper graphic novel type shit. The scythe chariot was propelled by horses with a pillion rider and carried in front of it four scythes mounted on a revolving gear turned by a shaft driven by the wheels of a cart behind the horses. It was like it was like having a, a chariot with a huge helicopter blade, just out in front. If all the blades were essentially giant fucking swords, just four huge sword blades spinning around, chopping people's arms and heads off and shit, or malfunctioning and chopping off the horse's head that was pulling the chariot, or pulling the you know chopping off the, the head of the chariot driver. Leonardo did note this particular idea was you know maybe not his best, maybe he had the potential to do a lot of collateral damage. Probably best that one stays in the notebook. Uh, Leonardo, Leonardo also drew a sketch in his notebooks during this time about uh, of what was basically a, a tank. Da Vinci's tank was said to be propelled or was supposed to be propelled by two men powering crankshafts. Although the drawing itself looks quite finished, the mechanics weren't apparently uh, fully developed. Because if built as drawn, the tank, with a lot of effort, might be made to rotate on the spot, would never progress in a forward direction. But in a, deep, in a BBC documentary with such a good title, Leonardo, the man who wanted to know everything. A military team built the machine and just made one slight little tweak, uh, found that, you know, they just had to change one of the gears, and then it did actually work really well. Uh, These guys, you know, were were moving around. One guy's you know, uh, manning kind of the top part of, like, the turret. There's a couple guys, you know, turning these gears, making the tank actually move. Uh, Leonardo's notebooks also uh, show cannons which he claimed could hurl small stones like a storm with the smoke of these, causing great terror to the enemy and, and great loss of confusion. These little cannons would come out of the tank. And an armored moving vehicle capable of shooting numerous projectiles, if you sent those across the battlefield and you were shooting at the enemy with a giant fucking crossbow, I feel like psychological intimidation alone is going to win you some battles. And enemies would just be so confused. Uh, what is it this? Uh? Uh, what do they think are they doing? Uh? Who's making giant crossbow. It's crazy. It's making my knees weaker. It must be a warrior behind this. Maybe it's a Bowser. <laughs> I, love, I love that no one gets mad when you just do the most patronizing Italian accent, whatever. Uh, da Vinci knew a lot about medieval warfare. Here's a quote that speaks to his military acumen. He wrote, when a place is besieged, I know how to cut off water from the trenches and construct an infinite variety of bridges, mantlets, scaling ladders, other instruments pertaining to sieges. I also have types of mortars that are very convenient and easy to transport. When a place cannot be reduced by the method of bombardment, either because of its height or its location, I have methods for destroying any fortress or other stronghold, even if it be founded upon rock. If the engagement be at sea, I have many engines of a kind most efficient for offense and defense, and ships that can resist cannons and powder. All right, then. My God. In addition to being a uh, super talented and intelligent... Dude also had no shortage of confidence. Look, uh, you had a Da Vinci. You're gonna win the battle, okay? It's as simple as that. You need a giant fucking crossbow. I got it. I got that. You want a tanker? I got you a tanker. Believe, believe me, there are ways to do You want, you want to know about it? Believe me. Hell, I can get you a, a tanker by three o'clock this afternoon. You need a chariot with a bunch of giant motorcycles spinning around, cutting everything to shit. I don't recommend it because it's very hard to control and dangerous. But I can do with that. A rocket launcher, is a laser guns, a tractor beam to nukes. What the fuck ever? I can do it all, baby. I'm a Da Vinci. I can start it now. Sure, I'm in the middle of a few arts contracts at the moment, but I can wake away. I can walk away from that shit easy. I don't think give a the fuck about finishing some paintings of angels and babies and shit. I do it all at the time. And yes, big Lebowski fans, I did try to sneak a Walter parody in the middle of that. You want to toe? I can get you toe by noon. Or well, no, I can get you toe by three o'clock. Jesus, Walter. In 1485, a plague took over Milan where Leonardo was living and working. Leonardo survived, but outbreaks of the disease killed some 50,000 people. A full third of the city's population and all these deaths inspired the Renaissance man to design concepts for a future city that he illuminated through a series of drawings and notations completed between 1487 and 1490. More on that in a second. In 1487, Leonardo would draw one of his most recognizable images, the iconic Vitruvian man. It's accompanied by notes based on the work of Vitruvius. A first-century BCE Roman military architect, author, and civil engineer. The drawing, which is in ink and on uh, which is in pen and ink on paper, depicts a male figure in two superimposed positions with his arms and legs apart, simultaneously inscribed in a circle and a square. The drawing and text are sometimes called the Canon of Proportions, or less often Proportions of Man. They're stored in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Venice, Italy, and like most works on paper, displayed only occasionally. The drawing is based on the correlations of ideal human proportions with geometry described by the ancient Roman Vitruvius. Vitruvius described the human figure as being the principal source of proportion among the classical orders of architecture. Other artists had attempted to depict the concept with less success. The drawing is traditionally named in honor of this architect. Leonardo's famous drawings of the Vitruvian proportions of a man's body first standing inscribed in a square and then with feet and arms outspread inscribed in a circle provide an excellent early example of of the way in which his studies of proportion would fuse artistic and scientific objectives. It is Leonardo, not Vitruvius, who points out that if you open the legs so as to reduce the stature by one-fourteenth and open and raise your arms so that the middle fingers touch the line to the top of the head, know that the center of the extremities of the outspread limbs will be the umbilicus, and the space between the legs will make an equilateral triangle. And uh, you know what? I understand all of that. I sure, I do. Sure, I do. I'm not dumb. <laughs> I get it. I didn't agree. Yeah, I was thinking a lot of the same things when I looked at that. I, the Biblical got to be in the middle. You know what I mean? And you got to have squares and triangles to make it all all work. That's, I'm <laughs> moving along. 1488, in response to the plague, Leonardo finishes uh, designs on that ideal city I mentioned. Uh, the Renaissance concept of the ideal city expressed by Leonardo in his rigorously geometric urban planning, he envisioned two signature features of this future city. A network of canals that would support both commerce and better sanitation that would lead to less outbreaks of disease. The vertical division of the city itself into as many as three different tiers, each for a different purpose. The radical vision essentially would have required either the founding of a brand new city, perfectly located on a site featuring large rivers, or for an existing city to be entirely rebuilt. Not surprising that his uh, city dream did, uh, went unrealized. Leonardo conceived of buildings as hydraulic machines, which distributed water in all the rooms of the house, as well as in the artesian workshops through a mechanical lifting system. In the workshops, the energy released in this way was used to drive various types of machines. I mean, fuck you, man! He basically was like uh, trying to have a like a mechanical city way back in the 15th century. So cool that he was even just thinking about things like that. Always thinking, always dreaming. You know, the jokes may not have suited him, but I do think Da Vinci would like the spirit of time suck. Hail Da Vinci! Uh, Da Vinci's inventions continue. Between 1488 and 1489, Leonardo uh, sketches the design for his first flying machine. In his fascination with flying, Leonardo attempted to combine the dynamic potential of the human body with an imitation of natural flight. In his notes, he cites bats, kites, and other birds as models to imitate. He even refers to his flying machine as the great bird. He wrote, An object offers as much resistance to the air as the air does to the object. You may see that the beating of its wings against the air supports a heavy eagle in the highest and rarest atmosphere, close to the sphere of elemental fire. Again, you may see the air in motion over the sea, fill the swelling sails, and drive heavily laden ships. From these instances and the reasons given, a man with wings large enough and duly connected might learn to overcome the resistance of the air and by conquering it, succeed in subjugating it and rising above it. Jesus! Yeah, he really was such a genius. Would that work? No, not that design, but it wasn't his final attempt at a flight machine. Sometime from 1488 to 1490, Leonardo sketches the design for a double-decker bridge, which is surprisingly modern. It recalls the function of bridges in some modern metropolises where the two-way flow of traffic arranged on different levels. Leonardo doesn't mention what this project was actually for, but it is clear that it is a way of organizing the two-circulation system in such a way that doesn't create traffic jams or obstructions. Uh, While da Vinci was inventing cars, planes, tanks, bridges, and fucking cities, he was also still into painting. Leonardo would paint his famous lady with an er ermine from 1489 to 1490. An ermine, by the way, is a cute little short-tailed white weasel. They're tiny, less than a pound. One of Leonardo's many notebooks was a companion of animals where he made notes about different species. And of the ermine, he wrote, the ermine, out of moderation, never eats but once a day. And it would rather let itself be captured by hunters than take refuge in a dirty lair, in order not to stain its purity. And it is thought he included an image of this creature with the subject of the portrait identified as Cecilia Gallerani to symbolize her purity, which is funny because this portrait is probably painted at a time when she was the mistress of the Duke of Milan, Leonardo was being paid to serve. So the purity of a mistress, slightly ironic. Uh, the painting is one of only four female portraits painted by Leonardo. The others being the Mona Lisa, the portrait of, G- G- God damn, that fucking Ginny is one of the, that's like the only word that comes up all the time. In this uh, sucks. I didn't look at the pronunciation for G- Ginevra, Fucking whatever, Debenci and Lebel, uh, long word. It is displayed by the, uh, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's displayed by the Sartoreski Museum in Krakow, Poland. And it is cited in the museum's guide as the first truly modern portrait. It's been in Poland since 1798. And if, and if you're surprised Poland has art, don't be. Remember, Polish people can't read, so they love pictures. When I said cited in the museum's guide as the first truly modern portrait uh, a moment ago, I, I didn't mean it was written. I meant the Polish museum guide points at it and yells, that's a portrait of a lady. Da Vinci did it a long time ago. He yells at every 30 seconds. And every two hours, he's given a sausage as a reward. I love you, Polish suckers. And I I love that, as I make fun of you for your limitations, when I can barely say so many words in 1489, Da Vinci also planned a wedding. Was there nothing he couldn't do? Yes, not kidding. Da Vinci planned the wedding of Duke Giovanni Galazio with Isabella de Ergan in Milan in 1489 on behalf of his patron, Lodovico Savalistad. I think I should just say everything in weird accents because then at least it sounds like I'm kind of saying, right. He's made it a of His production for the ceremony included a representation of heaven and the revolving planets. As the couple walked through the display, each planet opened, revealing a person dressed as the deity of each. Jesus. Each person recited a, a bello Sione poem for the newlyweds. And then he helped plan an even bigger Milan wedding in 1491 for the Duke himself. Not only did he create the menu, entertainment, decoration, he even designed what guests would wear, including their hats. Uh, this is based on dining room layout, uh, which was a one long table with diners all set on the same side on the style of the Last Supper painting. He may have also composed the music to be played at this wedding. The evidence of da Vinci's composition abilities scarce, but he was in charge of the music at the wedding, It's believed he knew how to compose, and he for sure did invent a new musical instrument in 1490. Somewhere between 1488, 1489, Da Vinci sketched out designs for something called a viola organista. Uh, I guess it could have been 1490 as well. It was designed to use a friction belt to vibrate individual strings, kind of like uh, how a violin produces sound. You press keys on a keyboard to select different strings, kind of like an organ. it's, It's a mix of piano and violin uh, and it, it's, it's not believed Da Vinci ever built one, but Polish concert pianist and instrument builder, Zlawomir Zubrisky, uh, I guess Polish people can do some pretty cool things, did make one based on Da Vinci's designs in 2013. And I want you to hear this. Here's a sample of this man in 2013 playing the strange and beautiful instrument that Da Vinci created five centuries previously. was a few notations regarding uh lyrics nothing full so we don't have anything uh, unfortunately like the full song but there was a couple scribbles uh, and i believe the words were supposed to be i like the spaghetti i like the lasagna i like the pizza pie and that's dumb i know that i do know that but how fucking cool is that sound all of that noise from one instrument. It sounds so full. It sounds like, multiple. to me, it sounds like multiple instruments are being played. Uh, yeah, just an instrument built on plans over 500 years old. Da Vinci's uh, amazing brain kept being curious and inventive in the 1490s. Around 1490, Leonardo sketched a design for an adding machine, basically an old, you know, early type of calculator in one of his journals. Uh, that particular journal would be lost until the 20th century. What a cool discovery this is. February 13th, 1967, an amazing discovery was made by American scientists working in the National Library of Spain in Madrid. Uh, They had a chance upon two unknown works of Leonardo da Vinci known as the Codex Madrid, 197 pages these guys found, of da Vinci notes that had just been lost in this giant library's vast inventory. I mean, it turns out they weren't actually lost, they were just misplaced. Like how cool would it be to find that? Yeah, do you want to keep these uh, two old notebooks and some doodles? Nah, let's throw them out. We don't have room. Uh, they say property of Leonardo da Vinci on the front. Ah, don't throw them out. Those are worth like a million billion dollars each. Uh, French mathematician and inventor, Blasé Pascal, he is credited with the uh, Addy Machine in 1642, the first one. Diagrams and directions discovered for an even earlier adding Machine design, though. 1624, Wilhelm Schickard designed a mechanical calculator. Uh, Believe that two prototypes survived, although their whereabouts remain unknown. Leonardo's device was a lot like Pascal's adding machine, and he came up with it now now because these notebooks we know over 150 years earlier. And had Da Vinci been able to implement th- this invention in so many others, he could have revolutionized the already innovative Renaissance so much further. He could have single handedly advanced society in so many different ways, like centuries. My God, uh, his uh, work towards the goal of human flight continued in the 1490s. Uh, in 1493, Leonardo da Vinci sketches his design for his aerial screw. It's the world's first known design for a helicopter type device. Leonardo da Vinci credited with having first thought of a machine designed for f- vertical flight. So he's like the guy who, you know, thought of the first helicopter-ish machine. The designs for da Vinci's air screw dated 1493 again, discovered in that Madrid library. So cool. I, I can't imagine finding a book like that in some old archives. Like fuck Oak Island. That is cool buried treasure. Way cooler to me than a big pile of gold. Cooler than pirate's treasure, right? And worth more <laughs> than a bunch of gold. Um, it's just cool that, you know, somebody else could find something in some monastery, attic, or, or covent, or, you know, I guess maybe some other library. Who knows what's out there? Anyway, this design consists of a platform surmounted by a helical screw driven by a somewhat rudimentary system. Kind of like the rubber-powered propeller of a, of a model aircraft, like a kid's uh, model aircraft. The great genius wrote that if this instrument in the form of a screw was made of linen, the pores of which have been stopped with starch, it should, upon being turned sharply, rise into the air in a spiral. However, his design was never put into any practical use. So cool how he understood through his genius and years of study yet to be explained scientific principles. I mean, in 1686, two full centuries later, Sir Isaac Newton would introduce his third law of motion summarized as, for every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And da Vinci's description of an object offering as much resistance to the air as the air does to the object tells me he understood this law perfectly. Ah, 1495, da Vinci busy painting one of his most famous works, The Last Supper, the one author Dan Brown ruined for millions of paranoid people. This religious-themed mural was created for his patron, Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, Last Supper measures 15 feet by 29 feet, covers the back wall of the dining hall at the UNESCO World Heritage Site and Church, the Santa Maria della Greci in Milan, Italy. Had no idea it was that huge. The theme was a traditional one for communal eating halls, but Leonardo's talents gave it much greater realism and depth. The arches above the main painting painted with the uh, Savorza coat of arms. The opposite wall of the refectory, uh, refectory, covered by a crucifixion fresco painted by a much or less known Milan-based Renaissance artist, Giovanni Donato da Montorfano. Leonardo began work on The Last Supper in 1495, completed it in 1498. However, he did not work on the piece continuously throughout this period. Of course he didn't. Again, this whimsical son of a bitch just, you know, kind of stepped away from things when he felt like it. Uh, As we learn in the history of the internet, lots of Last Supper paintings were commissioned during the Italian Renaissance. What makes da Vinci's work so remarkable? Well, first, the disciples are all displaying very human, identifiable emotions. Leonardo's version was the first to depict real people acting like real people. Secondly, the technical perspective da Vinci displayed in the last summer set a new bar for art at the time. Every single element of the painting directs one's attention straight to the midpoint of the composition, Christ's head. To many respected art experts, The Last Supper is arguably the greatest example of one-point perspective ever created, like ever. And if I, uh, you know... Had, you know, I've even heard of one point perspective before, I would probably agree. But my art knowledge is limited. Like, you know, I guess I could be like, yeah, fuck it. Fuck you, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's the best. I get it. You know, it's cool. I think it's cool. He didn't use stick figures. I'd be the worst art, uh, you know, tour guide. Yeah, it's like this guy faces look cool. And, you know, I like the colors and it's good size. I like, I like a bigger painting. So this guy was known for like bigger things. And that's why he was more famous. And uh, he liked, look at the blue. That's fucking cool shit. Anyway, A-plus for art. Somewhere started in 1495, Leonardo also paints the second of his Madonna on the rocks. Dude loved Madonnas, and he loved rocks. A lot of people don't know that about Leonardo. He's a big, big rock guy. Uh, that's, that's, if I was giving the tour, I would include that too. I'd be like, yeah, I painted the Madonna on the rocks because, uh, you know, he had a hard-on for rocks. You know what I mean? Rocks guys, rocks off. Anyway, let's move it along. The second version of the rocks is the National Gallery of London, uh, and uh, we mentioned that one as well earlier. Uh, 1498, the Italian mathematician and Franciscan friar, a celibate member of the Catholic religious order founded by St. Francis of Assisi, Luca P- Pacioli, who's called the father of accounting and bookkeeping, composed a book called De Divine Proportione on the divine proportion, which was illustrated by our buddy Leonardo da Diva da Vinci. The title of the book refers to the golden ratio. What does that mean? Does it have to do with golden showers? Does it tell you not to eat asparagus before you give a golden shower? Is that rude? Should you be extra hydrated for a golden shower? Should you take a regular shower before giving someone a golden shower? And should they probably shower after receiving your shower? Should you probably never talk about any of this? Should you probably never do it? It's probably unhealthy. The golden ratio has nothing to do, thank God, with golden showers. In the golden ratio, A plus B is to A as A is to B. The golden ratio is a special number Found by dividing a line into two parts so that the longer part divided by the smaller part is equal to the whole length divided by the longer part, often symbolized by uh, using phi, sometimes pronounced phi, the 21st letter of the Greek alphabet. Why is it important? Well, some have theorized that many of Leonardo's paintings employ the golden ratio in ways that give it, uh, give his work perspective that our brains naturally identify as looking better, like more perfect somehow. Like he, he was using math to kind of trick our minds into finding more beauty in his work. You know, uh, he was just using some kind of scientific wizard tricks. It's kind of like how babies are more drawn to faces that are more symmetrical than uh, those that aren't. They've done studies that have proven that. Uh, Or like how adults tend to find more symmetrical faces more attractive. Kind of like how banana peels are way sexier looking, you know, than uh, other fruit. You know, forget about that last example. What I was trying to say is that whether we are conscious of it or not, we do seek out and appreciate balance And Leonardo knew that, and he knew how to incorporate, you know, certain mathematic principles into his work. However, saying that, uh, most art historians don't think he did it to the level some people do. They don't think he, you know, uh, used the golden ratio as much, you know, in his art as much as others. But it's part of the legend. So Nimrod wills me to include it in telling it to you. 1499. Let's get back on track. French army invades Milan. Leonardo leaves. They should have built his tanks, should have made some of his giant crossbows. Duke Sforza was overthrown, which leaves now 47-year-old Leonardo without a patron. He traveled around Italy for a while, maybe snuck in a little sodomy on the on the down low. Uh, some speculate, you know, you gotta have some kind of romantic life, right? Maybe, maybe not. Then landed in Mantua before eventually returning to Florence. While in Mantua, Da Vinci draws the portrait and profile of Isabella d'Este, This famous drawing is a sketch for a portrait that was never painted. Despite its fragile state of conservation, it is said to be one of Leonardo's finest head-and-shoulders portraits. It is also the only known drawing by the master highlighted with several colored pigments. It offers cool insight as well to his portrait process, starting with the detailed sketch before moving into the actual paint. Starting in 1499, Leonardo draws the Virgin and Child with St. Anne and St. John the Baptist. The Virgin and Child with St. Anne and St. John the Baptist, sometimes called the Burlington House Cartoon, uh, Is a full-size cartoon done by Leonardo da Vinci. And I have such, I, I feel like, hopefully I'm doing this episode justice. I have such little artistic education. Like, I, I've always loved it. I've always loved paintings specifically. Don't know fucking shit about them. <laughs> How to make them, uh, the background of most artists. When I first came across the, the words Burlington House Cartoon, I'm not saying this for a joke. I actually thought he drew some do drew some cartoons. I thought he made like some da Vinci cartoons. Like some kind of medieval version of Sunday paper funnies. Like with little like word bubbles and everything. I was like, I didn't fucking know that. That's cool. Like, you know, like maybe the Burlington House was just a, a place for a bunch of like wacky renaissance. Bachelors lived, you know, big goofy grins, googly eyes. <laughs> you know, some bearded artist guy in some frame walks up to the Burlington House all beat up and bruised, soaking wet. And she, and she said, I thought that you would yell, "Killer her to uh, But she said, "Killer her Bota," uh, And that's why we crashed into the dark. Uh, Everybody laughs in the next frame. Some horny old man from upstairs window yells, just, ah, Leonardo, uh, you always know how to make the ladies a wet, uh. Everybody laughs in the next frame, except for some lady who's all fucking soaked and miserable from, you know, wrecking on a boat. I didn't say he was going to do a good cartoon. That's just where my mind went. No, in the context of Renaissance paintings, a cartoon refers to a full-scale preparatory drawing for a fresco, oil painting, or a tapestry. Uh, the word we use today comes from the Italian cartone, which simply means a large sheet of paper or a card. So, ah, bummer. He didn't do a cartoon. The Burlington House cartoon combines two popular themes in Florentine painting in the 15th century. The Virgin Mary and the child with St. Baptist, or St. Saint Saint Baptist, Saint John the Baptist, and the Virgin and a Child with St. Anne currently hangs in the National Gallery in London. There's a subtle interplay between the gazes of the four figures with St. Anne smiling at her daughter Mary while Mary's eyes are fixed on her son, as are St. John's. There is little in the way of clear delineation between the four bodies. The heads of the two women in particular look like the growths on the same body. St. Anne's enigmatic gesture of pointing her index finger towards the heavens recurs in two of Leonardo's last paintings, as St. John the Baptist and Bacchus, and is regarded as the quintessential Leonardo-esque gesture. The drawing in charcoal and black and white chalk covers eight sheets of paper glued together. Unusual for a cartoon, the outlines have never been pricked or incised, indicating that the stage of transferring the design to the panel that would be painted on was not reached. The work's title, The Burlington House Cartoon, refers to its home at the Royal Academy until 1962 when it was put on sale for 800,000 pounds, which is crazy for like a very unfinished work. Yeah, it went for that much. In 1987, The Burlington House Cartoon was attacked in an act of vandalism with shot-off shotgun. The blast caused significant damage despite not fully penetrating the canvas after shattering the glass covering But it has since been restored. The shooter was Robert Cambridge, who claimed he committed this act in order to bring attention to political, social, and economic conditions in Britain. He did not. He did it because he was extremely mentally ill. Speaking of guns, Leonardo may have drawn up designs for the world's first machine gun, at least the first drawing of a machine gun. Around 1500, C.E. Da Vinci sketched in one of his notebooks a design for what can only be called a a machine gun. Leonardo also wanted to increase, uh, he wanted to increase the rate of bullets that could be fired at one time. So he designed machines with multiple cannons so they could be fired successively or all together. He ended up drawing two different machine gun type designs illustrating weapons that used racks of 11 or 14 different guns. While the top row was being fired, the next rack was loaded. Simultaneously, a third rack would be cooling off. Another design had the guns in a triangle spread out for greater distribution of their projectiles. Uh, By 1502, Leonardo would find a new job and become uh, Cesare Barjara, uh, is the head military engineer the head military engineer in Romagna, former province in northern Italy artist wedding planner musical instrument inventor inventor of so many other things he could he could have used he probably could have juggled 47 balls at one time if he was live to gay he'd be People Magazine sexiest man alive he'd probably be able to hit a receiver in mid stride throwing a football 300 yards and his dick probably sang beautiful opera songs when it came I just finished I just finished I just finished now I go into sleep. Uh. That would be what Leonardo's dick would say. Uh, Leonardo would travel around the region inspecting fortifications on behalf of, you know, uh, or for his new job. Cesare Barja was sort of a big deal himself, by the way. I'm just laughing at all these fucking words. A lot of these episodes, when they get this on paper, when I'm going over in preparation, just so you know my preparation process, I have all these pronunciation notes all over. and I'm like, yeah, I fucking got this. gonna be so easy. I'll say a few sentences here and there out loud. Yeah, 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 I got this. And then I go to record, my brain's like, yeah, yeah, good luck, dummy. And it's just like, God damn it. 25,000 words and about 10 is today's episode. Honestly, it's over, over, over 25,000 words. And it feels like 10,000 of them are just like, oh no. Um, Shazada Borja was sort of a big deal himself. Uh, Borgia was Duke of Valentinois was an Italian military leader plus a nobleman, politician, and cardinal. Borgia also just happened to be the son of Pope Alexander VI and his long-term mistress. Uh, Cesare Borgia fights—his uh, fight for power be a major inspiration for Machiavelli's— I like that word—great uh, work, the prince. While working for Borgia, Leonardo built the canal from Cesena to the Porto fucking something. Porto Cesanatico. <laughs> this canal still exists— it's the uh, only, uh, canal, or it's, it's used daily in the town of Romagna. Speaking of Machiavelli, there was a time when da Vinci and Machiavelli would put their great minds together and plot to steal a river. Leonardo da Vinci was residing at Borgia's court when the great Niccolo Machiavelli came to visit, the gifted author, poet, philosopher, playwright, father of modern political science and more. Another brilliant Renaissance man, Machiavelli is the man behind the term Machiavellian, an adjective meaning cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous, especially in politics or advancing one's career. Da Vinci, Machiavelli, 1502, 1503, working together to do some shady shit. Uh, they hatch a brilliant scheme to make Florence rich and screw over Florentine rival city P- uh, city state, Pisa, once and for all. They actually tried to steal the river Arno, which I think is amazing. Fuck a bank heist. They try a river heist. The river Arno was the main water source for both Florence and Pisa. By stealing the Arno, Machiavelli and Da Vinci hope to not only deprive Pisa of the ability to grow their own crops, bathe, and stay alive but also to better irrigate the farmlands of Florence and turn a profit by selling the water to local farmers. Additionally, the water would be diverted into a series of canals that would make it possible for ships to sail from Florence out to the Mediterranean, very ambitious plan. Stealing the Arna would spell wealth for Florence and would spell death for Pisa. I feel like the phrase go big or go home was written about Da Vinci. Dude went real big with some of his designs and plans. And they actually set out to make to make this happen. Da Vinci gleefully set about making plans that involved tunneling under a mountain, moving millions of tons of dirt, and it would require 50,000 workers. Leonardo proposed the construction of one wide channel, deeper than the Arno itself, which when combined with a dam, would divert the entirety of the river away from Pisa and into some nearby marshland. The channel was intended to be 80 feet wide, at its mouth, 64 feet wide, at its end, 30 feet deep, and a mile long. Big project. And they did give it a go. Once Machiavelli signed off on the idea, Da Vinci's plans went to an engineer named Columbino, who frankly just wasn't smart enough to, you know, carry out Da Vinci's vision. Instead of digging one massive trench per Da Vinci's plan... Da Vinci, uh, Colombino decided it was easier to build two shallow trenches and let the river erode into one of them, erode them into one canal. Colombino also underestimated the amount of time and men he would need to build these two canals. Fucking Colombino! I knew I didn't like that asshole. Now I know why. Uh, Columbino's construction plans fails. Yeah, the De Arno destroys his two canals, and more or less the river stays on its natural course. Machiavelli and Da Vinci part ways, never attempting to revisit this insane project again. While planning that river diversion, Leonardo also, you know, no big whoops. Designed several machines, just invented several new things to help make digging and moving uh, easier. This guy's just showing off at this point, but I just think that's amazing. Like, what if they would have done that? What if they would have pulled that off? You know, down there in Pisa, and all of a sudden your just river goes dry. You're like, what? The, what the fuck? Then <laughs> you go up there. Ah, da Vinci. He stole us the river. Ah, he's working with the Bowser. Uh in or around 1501 or 1502, Leonardo da Vinci made a sketch of a giant single span bridge. That was to be built be built over the Golden Horn, a natural inlet of the Bosphorus Strait, dividing the city of Constantinople (present day Istanbul). It was to be part of a civil engineer project for Sultan Bayezid II. Everyone wanted a piece of this guy's brain. The massive bridge was to be seventy-two feet wide, twenty-four meters, thousand eighty-foot total length, three hundred sixty meters, one hundred twenty feet, forty meters above the sea level at the highest point of the span. This would be the first time in history that such a long, single-span bridge had ever been proposed. The construction methods needed to build such a structure uh, wouldn't even come into existence for another 300 years. Consequently, the bridge could not be built because it was just too advanced for the builders of the time to carry out his vision. For 500 years, Leonardo's graceful design remained an obscure, tiny drawing in the corner of one of his you know, many notebooks uh, until 1966, when a contemporary Norwegian artist, Bjørn Sand saw the drawing at an exhibition of one of Leonardo's engineering designs, or some of them. Sam Sand was impressed by it, so impressed that by, when he returns to Oslo, he proposes that the Norwegian public roads undertake the construction of this project. For the next few years, Viborn Sand devoted his time and effort to transform the Leonardo Bridge project from a dream into a reality. And in 2001, a small pedestrian footbridge based on Leonardo's original design was built near the town of Funny Letter A.S., in Norway on Highway E18 linking Oslo and Stockholm. Leonardo's golden home bridge design is a perfect pressed bow. Leonardo surmised correctly that the classic keystone arch could be stretched narrow and substantially widened without losing integrity by using a flared foothold or pier and the terrain to anchor each end of the span. Uh, Again, amazingly, this was conceived by this dude 300 years prior to its engineering principles being generally accepted. I mean, you can see why the ancient astronaut theorists loved Da Vinci. I mean, if da Vinci could have cloned himself, he could could have moved the world forward a few hundred years in a crazy amount of ways. In 1503, Leonardo does some more painting in Florence. Sometime around October, 1503, he's commissioned to paint the mural of the Battle of Angiotti in the Ah, got that one, in the recently rebuilt great council called the Palazzo Vecchio. Fucking nailing it now! In Florence, during the first years of the city's Republican government, he would finish this ambitious and reportedly difficult project in 1505, the Battle of the Angiotti, sometimes referred to as the Lost Leonardo. Some commentators believe it's still hidden beneath later frescoes in the Hall of 500 in the Palazzo Vecchio. Its central scene depicted three men riding raging warhorses engaged in battle for uh, for something, uh, engaged in battle. But will future technology allow art historians to find it? And if it's there, remove paintings placed on top of it without damaging it? Time will tell. If da Vinci himself lived today, he'd probably already had this figured out. Uh, 1503, also the year that Leonardo finishes the most famous painting on earth. Thomas Kincaid's A Peaceful Retreat. Wait, I mean, Van Gogh's Starry Night. No, I mean the Mona Lisa. Also known as, uh, La La John... La... La... Ja... Conda. La John... La Fucking something. Mona Lisa. It's... <laughs> it's also known as the Princess of Picha. She's a beautiful lady. Uh, the Mona Lisa, owned by the government of France, and is on the wall in the Louvre in Paris with the title Portrait of Lisa uh, Giacandini, Wife of Francesco del Giocondo." The painting is a half-length portrait that depicts a woman whose expression is often described as enigmatic. The ambiguity of the sitter's expression, the monumentality of the half-figure composition, the subtle modeling of forms and atmospheric illusionism were novel qualities that have contributed to the painting's continuing fascination. Few other works of art have been subject to so much scrutiny, study, mythologizing, conspiracies, and parody. Historian Donald Sassoon cataloged the growth of the painting's fame. During the mid-1800s, Theophile Gautier and the Romantic poets were able to write about Mona Lisa as a femme fatale because Lisa was an ordinary person. Mona Lisa was an open text into which one could read that one wanted or what one wanted— probably because she was not a religious image and probably because the literary gazers were mainly men who subjected her to an endless stream of male fantasies. So, sounds like some guys were jerking off to the Mona Lisa, which is hard to imagine today. She doesn't exactly ooze sex appeal, but I guess, uh, you know, beauty in the eye of the beholder. Uh, the painting really became famous in 1911 when an Italian handyman named Vincenzo Perugia stole it from the Louvre. Uh, Vincenzo was the guy who helped construct the painting's glass case, and he stole this painting by walking to the museum during regular hours, Hiding in a broom closet and then just walking the fuck out when the painting, uh, you know, or after hours with the painting hidden under his coat, simple and genius. Last week's suck character, Jesse James would have approved or maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe it would have been too sneaky for him. Maybe Jesse James would have wrote up guns, drawn shot anyone, refusing to give him the painting in self-defense. Perugia was an Italian patriot who believed that Leonardo's paintings should have been returned to an Italian museum. He was also just a guy who wanted to make a ton of money selling it. I think the second part was his primary motivation. He, uh, he hid the painting in his apartment for two years while the world looked for it and the Mona Lisa's fame grew. Then he got caught trying to sell it to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. From December 1962 to March 1963, the French government lent it to the United States to be displayed in New York City, Washington, D.C. in 1974. And then the painting was exhibited in Tokyo and Moscow. After that, Between, before the 1962-1963 tour, the painting was assessed for insurance purposes as being valued at $100 million, No one really knows how much the painting is worth, but in 2014, a French TV station suggested it could be sold to ease the French national debt, and it was speculated to be valued at $2.5 billion. Wow. And by the way, no one really knows who Mona Lisa was. Uh, She's thought to be a young Florentine woman, Mana or Mona Lisa, who in 1495 married Francesco del Giocando, a wealthy silk merchant, and thus came to be known as La Giocanda. Okay, I think I got it this time. On July 9th, 1504, at the age of 77, Sapiero, Leonardo's father, dies. Piero died while working as notary in Florence. No big burial or funeral for him that we know of, no records that have been found. So Leonardo, uh, you know, may not have attended. Uh, because Leonardo was not directly a part of the family, he gained nothing in the in- in inheritance. Uh, did Da Vinci have some kind of falling out with his dad? Uh, was he at his side when his dad passed? It just wasn't recorded? We don't know. De- again, Da Vinci wrote next to nothing about his private life. In the ballpark of 1505, Leonardo makes an attempt to build another flying machine. By about 1505, 53-year-old Leonardo had been thinking about how to fly for roughly 20 years. Some think he built a complex ornithopter, a machine with flapping wings that closely mimicked the anatomy of birds in 1505. No one really knows if Leonardo actually built a model of and tested his ornithopter or not, but it's fun to imagine him giving it a go. Uh, Years later, in 1550, one of his associates— Cardanas, did write that his, teacher, that his teacher tried in vain to get an or- ornithopter off the ground. So I guess there's a possibility that the Renaissance man, you know, took his machine out for a few disastrous spins. In May of 1506, Leonardo was summoned by to Milan by Charles d'Amboise, the French governor. And in 1507, Leonardo is appointed French King Louis XII's painter and engineer. In 1508, Leonardo da Vinci paints The Virgin and Child with Saint Anne and Lamb. A uh, famed psychiatrist, Sigmund Freud would later see all kinds of symbolism hidden in this painting, claiming to see a vulture hidden in the painting that somehow represented Da Vinci's passive homosexuality. When I look at it, I see a hidden donut, which represents my current attempt to get back on a low carb diet after eating several donuts last week and really wanting more donuts this week. And donuts make me feel happy when I get sad about not being able to say stuff. In fifteen 1510, uh, 1511, Leonardo Da Vinci collaborates with Renaissance professor of anatomy Marcantonio De La Torre, who lectured at the University of Pavia, University of Padua, on a work of theoretical anatomy. As an artist, Leonardo was a master of to- uh, topographic anatomy, drawing many studies of muscles, tendons, other visible ana- uh, anatomical features. He was given permission to dissect human corpses at the Hospital of Santa Maria Nueva in Florence and later at hospitals in Milan and Rome. Together with Marcantonio della Torre, he prepared a theoretical work on anatomy for which Leonardo made more than 200 drawings published only in 1680, 161 years after his death, under the title Treatise on Painting. Its purpose was to teach art students how to draw more realistic human and animal figures by understanding the, you know, the the organs, muscles, bones and everything tendons that lie beneath our skin. Leonardo drew many studies of the human skeleton and its parts as well as muscles and sinews, the heart and vascular system, the sex organs, other internal organs, he even made one of the first scientific drawings of a fetus in utero. As an artist, Leonardo closely observed and recorded the effects of age and of human emotion on the physiology, studying in particular the effects of rage. Uh, He also drew many figures who had significant facial deformities or signs of illness. He also drew, uh, studied and drew the anatomy of many other animals as well, dissecting cows, birds, monkeys, bears, and frogs, comparing in his drawings their anatomical structure with that of humans. Also made a number of studies of horses. Uh, This book now exists at the Elmer Belt Library at UCLA in Los Angeles. Elmer Belt, pioneer in sex reassignment surgery and collector of everything da Vinci. He could get his hands on and afford. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci paints St. John the Baptist in 1515 when he's 63, an oil painting on walnut and wood, or on walnut wood, believed to be da Vinci's last painting. It's uh, 69 by 57 centimeters. Little guy, little guy. It's now exhibited at the Louvre in Paris. This piece depicts St. John the Baptist in isolation. St. John dressed in pelts, long curly hair, smiling in an ig- in, in enigmatic, yeah, in oh, Jesus Christ, enigmatic manner, reminiscent of Leonardo's famous Mona Lisa. Uh, also looks a lot like Kenny G, like a lot. St. John looks a lot like Kenny G in this painting. Uh, have fun trying to not think about that if you ever look at it. Uh, from September 15, 13 to 1516, Leonardo spent much of his time living in the Belvedere in the Vatican in Rome, where Raphael and Michelangelo were both active. Pretty sweet, just three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles chilling in the Vatican, no big whoop. Just three of the greatest artists of all time shooting the shit, that's all. Also in 1515, Francis I takes the throne in France uh, and on December 19th, 1515, Leonardo meets with Francis I and Pope Leo X. So, you know, it's kind of famous and shit, kind of a big deal. Meeting up with the king, you know, France and the Pope, having some wine, eating some cheese, taking the wings out, measuring them, making the guy with the smallest one run a naked lap around the palace, just bros being bros following year, Francis I commissions Da Vinci to build a robot. Not kidding. He wanted a robot lion, or at least a mechanical one, so he asked the greatest wizard alive to make it for him. And then Leonardo did indeed build a mechanical lion for the coronation of the new king of France. He built his mechanical lion with the ability to walk, and upon reaching his destination, open a compartment in its fully automated chest, revealing a fleur-de-lis, a stylized lily in honor of the French monarchy. Unsurprisingly, uh, the line was lost or destroyed at some point in history. God, a bummer. In 2009, another mechanical tinkerer named uh, Renato Barato Barreto, drew inspiration from Da Vinci's line, made his own version based on Da Vinci's plans, which walked, swayed his tail, moved his jaws, had a secret compartment that opened the, uh, to reveal a Florida Lee. I mean, I mean, sweet. No wonder some people think this guy was in the Illuminati. He made a walking robot lion in 1515. I watched a video of the replica walk around. It's fucking mind-blowing. It's like the biggest, most elaborate kids wind-up toy you've ever seen. I'm um, guessing the king of France was more than a little impressed. In 1516, he gives da Vinci use of a manor house near the king's own royal residence at the Chateau Amboise. And da Vinci spends the last three years of his life living here in luxury on a comfortable stipend, accompanied by his friend and apprentice, 25-year-old Count Francesco Melzi. Francesco Melzi, while not well-known, would go on to be a badass artist of his own after da Vinci's death, returning to Italy, getting married, and having eight kids. And then Leonardo da Vinci dies on May 2nd, 1519, at the age of 67. King Francis I to become a close friend. The famous artist and historian Giorgio Vasari records that the king held Leonardo's head in his arms as he died, although the story may be more legend than fact. I'm going to choose to believe it because I really like it. In his last days, Leonardo sent for a priest to make his confession and to receive the Holy Sacrament. He was buried at the chapel of St. Uh, Hubre in the Chateau Amboise, that was unfortunately demolished in the early 19th century. An excavation decades later turned up bones that were believed to be Leonardo's. An inscription notes carefully that the site holds the artist's presumed remains. Da Vinci's pup- pupil, Francesco Melzi, the only of Da Vinci's students to stay with him until death, was the principal heir and executor, receiving his money, final paintings— Tools, library, and other personal effects. In his death, Leonardo uh, did also remember other longtime pupil and companion, Salai, and his servant, Batista de uh, Velusis, who each received half of Leonardo's vineyards, and some of his half brothers did receive some land. Well, he never really wrote about him again. Again, so little is known about his private life. He did have nine half brothers and three half sisters. We don't know how close he was to any of them. Finally, a serving woman received a single black cloak. I'm guessing there's a story behind that that we'll never know. Might be a dumb story. You know, she might have just made one comment. About how she thought it was a sweet coat. And it was the day he happened to be writing his will. And he's like, well, fuck it. I'll, I'll give it to you. Upon da Vinci's death, his contemporary, another Renaissance man named Benvenuto uh, Cellini, who was an Italian goldsmith, sculptor, draftsman, soldier, musician, artist, and author, said of Leonardo, there had never been another man born in the world who knew as much as Leonardo. And I think that's enough for today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. What a life, my God. The legacy of Leonardo motherfucking Da Vinci, insanely vast from the world's most renowned painter to an inventor hundreds of years ahead of his time to a military strategist who plotted to steal a river and could have quite possibly pulled it off. The guy, truly one of the world's great geniuses. Let's just list some of this guy's interests real quick. Uh, Scientist, mathematician, engineer, inventor, anatomist, painter, sculptor, architect, wedding planner, musician, teacher, robot lion maker, wizard, time traveler, ninja, juggler, model train enthusiast, civil war reenactor, film director. He started in season two of Stranger Things, played the giant monster. Not sure about those last few, but it seems possible. How the hell did he do all that? Well, he didn't have kids get married. That's how I think that's the real lesson today. If you want to accomplish something great, you got to keep your dick out of vaginas or you got to keep your vagina free of dicks. You know, if I didn't have kids, if I didn't have a wife, I could say every word perfectly. No, that's not the real lesson. That's not the real lesson at all. But leading what seemed like a solitary life did allow him to, uh, you know, follow his artistic whims a little easier. The real lesson I think is if you want to accomplish all that Leonardo did, you gotta be curious. You gotta be real curious. You gotta be willing to take risks. You gotta work really, really hard, be taught by the best, be born in the right place, at the right time, in the right situation, with the right parents and have what may have been, you know, the highest IQ of all time. Uh, You know, uh, in short, a short look at Leonardo's, you know, life, we barely had time to look into the highly scientific mind of this incredible man. As a scientist, he greatly advanced the state of knowledge in the fields of anatomy, civil engineering, optics, hydrodynamics, as well as outlined a rudimentary theory of plate tectonics. We covered so much shit today and he did so much more. May have been the most diversely talented human to ever live. As an engineer, his ideas were vast yet of their time. You know, he conceptualized tanks, some say cars, concentrated solar power, a calculator, the submarine, the double hull, a number of flying machines like gliders and helicopter. He invented the first practical ball bearings. Relatively few of his designs were ever constructed or were even feasible to construct during his lifetime. Some of his smaller inventions, such as an automated bobbin winder and a machine for testing the tensile strength of wire, did enter the world of manufacturing. In 2016, Italian researchers used historic records to identify 35 living descendants of Leonardo only on his father's side. Those living relatives include Oscar-nominated Italian director Franco Zaffirilli, or Zaffirilli, Uh, perhaps most famous for his 1968 film adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. I haven't looked into it, so I'm going to assume maybe I'm another descendant. My 23 year adults do include 0.6% of me being broadly European, so maybe I like to think that I did inherit you know his little known talent for being able to have cartoonish accents it's to me Leonardo da Vinci I like to make a lot of things I like to make the lion the Mona Lisa I make so many of the scribbles I make the spaghetti I make the pizza pie I save the pizzas from the bowser let's go now to the top of five takeaways I try to go higher but my voice won't let me Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, despite all of the many, many talents of Da Vinci, his paintings are what he's best remembered for. Debates still rage on 500 years after Da Vinci's death over which of the surviving paintings are actually Da Vinci's works. Too many collaborations. Even the Salvatore Monday, not considered a true Da Vinci by some respected experts on Renaissance art, still sold for almost half a billion dollars because it might be Da Vinci's work. Number two, Many of Da Vinci's sketches and inventions were designed for military use, even though few made it to the battlefield. From armored tanks, giant crossbows, and, you know, multi cannon type devices, Leonardo was constantly creating new ways to kill a meat sack. Number three, Da Vinci was obsessed with flight. No one knows if he ever succeeded in taking flight, but his aerial screw, gliders, and ornithopter were sweet fucking attempts, especially for someone who lived over 500 years ago. I can't even make a decent paper airplane. Always end up with one tiny wing and one kind of big clunky wing, And they really make it across the room. They usually just kind of spin down to the floor. Da Vinci could probably make a paper airplane that could fly, you know, clear across the Midwest in one shot. You could probably have passengers on it. Number four, Da Vinci was a bastard, literally. His mother may have been a slave. He was born in a good time to be a bastard, but still, I love that despite having a wealthy father, his story still feels like the story of an underdog. Makes it a pinch more inspiring. Hail the underdog, praise Bojangles, our very own underdog. And number five, new info. Let's look at two more sweet inventions I didn't mention. First, how about a military diving suit designed hundreds of years before modern scuba gear? While working in Venice, the Water City in 1500, Da Vinci designed scuba gear for sneak attacks on enemy ships. The leather diving suit was equipped with a bag-like mask that went over the diver's head. Attached to the mask around the nose area were two cane tubes that led up to a cork diving bell floating on the surface. Air was provided for the opening of the tubes to the diver below. The mask also was equipped with a valve-operated balloon that could be inflated or deflated so the diver could more easily service or sink. Additionally, Leonardo da Vinci's scuba gear invention incorporated a pouch for the diver to urinate in. Da Vinci's idea for scuba gear didn't become well-known until his famix, famous Codex Atlanticus, 12-volume set of his drawings and notes published after his death, were found. Uh, wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that Jacques Cousteau an engineer uh, Emile uh, Gagnan invented the Aqualung or modern scuba suit. So many of da Vinci's inventions were so far ahead of his time, but his design for a humanoid robot might've been the most futuristic. Da Vinci invented a robotic knight that could wave its arms, move its neck, even open and close its mouth. The strange doll was controlled externally by cables operated with a hand crank as well as well as by an internal gear driven ancient machine. About 450 years after Da Vinci designed his robotic knight, his detailed sketches of the inventions were rediscovered. This contraption, made from a suit of armor, packed with springs, gears, pulleys, could reportedly sit, stand, walk, and raise his arms. Mark Roshheim, a roboticist who has built robotic systems for NASA, heard of it. Lockheed Martin, okay, whatever, built a working model of Da Vinci's robotic knight in 2002. Mark Roshheim researched Leonardo's robot obsessively because certain robotic pieces like the wrist joints are very difficult to build today and they were so well designed by da vinci 5 centuries ago that rosham incorporated some of da vinci's elements uh, you know into a modern robot he robot he used some of the elements uh, you know that went into the robot night da vinci made into a modern robot he was working on for nasa to possibly use in the international space station on fucking real a nasa roboticist still learning from da vinci hail da vinci time suck Top five takeaways. Ha! All right, meat sacks. The highly talented, possibly ancient alien, Leonardo da Vinci has been sucked. Leonardo from Vinci. Wish I could have met him. Uh, And and again, if I fumbled more than usual, it wasn't from lack of effort. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Camp. Reverend Dr. Joe, Horsecock Johnson Paisley. Thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. New update currently in a final beta test. I'm loving my beta version. Thanks to Access Apparel, Script Keeper, Zach Flannery. Uh, Thanks to everyone. checking the links in the episode description, bouncing out to Discord and our Facebook, Cult of the Curious, private Facebook group for further interaction and fellowship with fellow cult members. Next week, a return to true crime. Ah, shit. The dirtbag duo of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. Those are names I can say right every time. Running away for inspiration next week, indulging the base morbid curiosity so many of us share when it comes to true crime. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole are either some of the worst serial killers in American history or a pair of terrible liars. They claim to have traveled across America, murdering, raping, burning, even cannibalizing everyone who crossed their paths. And if Henry Lee Lucas is to be believed, they killed thousands. The two men met in 1976 at his soup kitchen and fell in love. Before night fell, Lucas had basically moved into Toole's home uh, sharing his bed. They both claimed to have been murderers before they met and then would go on to murder many more together. Both were horrifically abusive children. Lucas ended up killing his own mom in retaliation for abuse. Mother! Going that direction again. After meeting, the two traveled across 26 states, massacring as many people as they could find, preying upon hitchhikers, prostitutes, migrant workers, and more. Or did they? When they both were eventually arrested, they ended up talking uh, a lot to police about what they'd done. And then they talked some more and still some more and some more again They basically confessed eventually to every unsolved murder that had happened during their lifetimes. Lucas in particular confessed to murders he couldn't possibly have committed. Like he confessed over like a thousand murders. He for sure lied about some of them, but did he lie about all of them? Did they go to jail for murders they didn't commit? Or were they actually almost as bad as they were pretending to be? It's a dark tale. And after looking a bit into it, it sure seems like they did do for sure a lot of unbelievably horrible things. Are they gonna be as bad as Albert Fish, toy box killer, even worse? Find out next Monday. Find out what the cult has been up to right now with today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting off with an update that truly made me laugh out loud when I first read it. A Pat Sajak update. Not kidding. Time Sucker Michael, I'll leave your last name out to keep you from possibly getting in some trouble, (laughs) wrote in saying, Deadhead Sucker, I hear you are looking for some dirt on that awful man with the spelling show, Pat Sajak. (laughs) I grew up in the town Pat Sajak lives in in Maryland. So here's the dirt. Pat was a dick to me when I was 16 years old in 2008. It was when I worked at a local grocery store, which happened to be across from his rich neighborhood. One day I was refilling yogurt when I spotted a man in sunglasses and a hat staring at the yogurt down the aisle for way too long. So I saddled up to the guy and asked if he needed any help. That's when... Out of nowhere, he just yelled at me about how he doesn't need help. He's in there all the time. And then he says, and I quote, don't you know how much money I donate to this community? He yells at me briefly and storms off to another part of the store. I immediately recognized him when he turned to yell at me. Fucking Pat Sajak. To this day, I don't know why he decided to yell at me for trying to do my job and why he had to bring up his community donations. (laughs) So there you go. Pat Sajak is a dick. Now, when you casually mention he's a monster on the show, you can at least know that he was a monster of sorts to, to, at least once. Thanks for such a great show for a history nerd to laugh and learn at. P.S. His son and I are the same age and I knew him. He was a cocky ass who thought he was the greatest baseball player ever and drove a Porsche at the age of 16. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I gotta say, it is strangely reassuring to know that Sajak isn't perfect. And while he, you know, he's not a monster, he's not the monster I joked about. He's also not a saint, you know? He, the guy I didn't like to be fucked with when he was scoping out some of that, you know, some of that yogurt thinking about his yogurt, you know, he says, what is he going to get? Is going to get a blackberry? Is going to get Greek? Do you want some Froyo? You know, and then apparently you interrupted that thought process. And he fucking snapped a little bit. Maybe he's hangry. Uh, frustrated time sucker, Mitch Browning writes in about some tech issues. Mitch writes, Hey guys, I'm a huge fan of time suck and I've been since the beginning. Thanks for all the effort your team puts into each episode. So my point in writing is to ask if you know why I haven't been getting the last few episodes on my Google play account. I have an Android phone and it appears that I've been getting the last few episodes staggered between each other. I never got episodes 148, 151, 153. You know what's going on. Please let me know. Thanks again for all you do. Loyal time sucker, Mitch Browning. Uh, Well, Mitch, I'm sorry you're having trouble. Uh, Let me just start by saying Google Play fucking sucks. Uh, In my opinion, it's the worst podcast player out there. I hate it so much, truly. Over the course of the show and with the secret suck and with the app, has had more problems with the Google Play Store than with anything else, than with any third-party app, than with Apple, which is crazy to me because Google's a huge company, almost limitless technical support capabilities. But when it comes to podcasts, they don't give a shit. Their customer service is almost non-existent. They don't get back to podcast providers when our, you know, RSS feed fucks up on Google Play, the only place it has fucked up in like the last two years. Luckily, there's a ton of other free options. Podcast Attic is a good app on Android. CastBox seems to be good. Stitcher works great. Spotify works great. We have the Time Suck app. We're going to have a major update coming out soon that based on the beta version I've had for weeks is better than all of those. Not kidding. It's going to be, I think, so, so good. So sorry about Google Play. Nothing we can do on our end. Uh, I would recommend ditching that and grabbing one of the many other awesome players out there that don't have problems. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Jesse James Gang relatives update coming in from, yeah, 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 sucker Daniel Ames. Daniel writes, dear master sucker, this is, uh um, oh, Rocco Ames. Oh, okay, I think it said Daniel on uh, on the email for some reason. But anyway, this is Rocco Ames again, writing with a small Jesse James suck update. You mentioned that one of your relatives, a Cummins, was affiliated by the group. Yeah, Wendy Jim. Well, well, seems we have, we have a bit in common. My biological father, whom you mentioned in a previous Ed and Lorraine Warren update, excuse me, has provided me with an unpublished photo of bloody Bill Anderson. Claims him to be my four times great uncle. Apparently, my biological grandmother had some genealogy done back in the early 1990s through some nonprofit. They were able to dig up this information along with the photo they identified that was in an old box of our family photos. Who knows if it's 100% true, but we may have a photo somewhere of our ancestors smashing some cheap moonshine together. Keep up the great work. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise that sweet boy Bojangles. And most of all, hail you, the badass at the time. So, oh, that's very nice. P.S. Tell Paisley there's no shame in his big or not so big dick game. Uh, that's <laughs> that's amazing, Rocco. Uh, yeah, small world. Yeah, sounds like your ancestor of mine probably did throw back some moonshine together after doing some horrible outlaw shit. And, and I'm guessing your relation may made my relation a, a wee bit nervous. I, I didn't realize until I looked more into my relation because of your message that another one of my relatives, Artella Cummins, was the wife of Bob Ford, the guy who shot Jesse James. Huh. Wendy Jim, bloody Bill. Guess those maniacs have to be related to someone and they're related to us. Thanks for writing in, you fellow outlaw descendant. And I think Paisy's doing okay. He seems all right. Horse or, you know, or micropine, whatever. He's got cute kids and a beautiful wife. So, you know, life could be worse. I don't think he's too worried about his wing. Finally, touching vaccination update from Ryan, last name anonymous. Who writes, you can read this on the pod if you want, but please leave my last name out. I wanted to thank you. I just finished listening to the episode about vaccinations. was finally inspired to do my own research. I live in an area that is surprisingly full of anti-vaxxers. I have been on the fence about whether or not to vaccinate my firstborn son due in October. After listening to this episode, I started really looking into studies, scientific ones, not just the ones usually referenced in my neck of the woods that are mostly essays written by religious people. For the first time, I noticed just how much evidence there is to support vaccines being a much safer option. I showed some of the research I found on my own and studies you referenced to my wife and she and I are in agreement that we will be vaccinating our son and have a vaccine plan set up with our pediatrician. I wanted to say thank you for doing the the episode because without you, odds are I never would have heard just how much science there is to support vaccines and you may have helped save my son's life. It may sound stupid that I ever considered skipping them but I'm a new father and just trying to do what's best for my son and all we ever hear around here is vaccines give kids seizures or autism. And I've even heard from people I know very well that they have heard that vaccines cause AIDS. Uh, With all false information and fear being put out there, it's scary to think about how many times I put my son in in harm's way or might have put my son in harm's way had I not looked into vaccinations more. I've always been pretty gullible and willing to follow whatever information is put in front of me without looking into it myself. My son and this podcast have both inspired me to become more analytical. And I hope that maybe someday I myself can be the voice of reason to someone in my situation. Sorry for the awful grammar. I never got higher than a C in grammar class. Thanks for everything you do. Keep spreading knowledge. Keep your third eye open. Hail Nimrod. and keep on sucking. Wow, that's some heavy shit, Ryan. And real quick, uh, your grammar was top notch. At least I think so. Uh, I don't have a ton of grammar confidence myself. Your grammar abilities are easily 400 times greater than my pronunciation abilities. Uh, I respect the shit out of your strong desire to be an amazing father, man. Uh, you sound like an awesome dude. I hope, I hope I've steered you right. What I really love is that you, di- you didn't trust me either. And you did additional research yourself, right? I can't stress how important that is. No one should take what anyone else says at face value when it comes to something as important as deciding which needles to stick in their child. I do the best job I can <laughs> saying words, uh, spreading what I feel is the most accurate info I can, but inevitably, <laughs> God damn it. I was going to say, I literally, literally was going to say, inevitably I fuck up and I fuck up the word inevitably. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly I fuck up all the time and you should not base any life decision off of any of the shit that comes out of my mush mouth without doing a lot of extra digging first. You know, what I want to spread most on this show is not, um, not total accuracy. It's just curiosity and just, you know, uh, an analytical approach to life, you know, some kind of a version of what Da Vinci had the curiosity to figure out how our world works, you know, and just try to figure out how, you know, how things work, why things are being said, Take things seriously. You know, it takes time to look into stuff, but it's worth it. The more you learn, the better decisions you're going to make, the better your life is going to be. I do believe that to be true with every fiber of my being. And I'm so, so grateful that I was able to spread that curiosity virus to you. So ask questions, verify information, Ryan. I love it. Learn to discern good sources from bad sources. Think critically, make solid decisions, make the most out of your journeys around the beautiful sun and, uh, you know. And, and do the best job you can to, to give your kids the best chance at having the best life they can. Love this cult! Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everyone. Get out there, invent something amazing, create something beautiful, or, you know, if you don't want to do those things, maybe you could subscribe. To the new Scared to Death podcast. I keep, I keep hugging. and I keep on sucking. I keep on sucking as much as you can. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> so, sounds like some guys were jerking off to the Mona Lisa. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day.